Hey folks, what do you know? It's the Uticast episode 252. You know folks, books are a uniquely portable magic, and in these times of corona, you either get busy living, or you get busy dying. And this week, we're gonna get busy living by going back and looking at our favorite author, the man that me and Kevin have been talking about since we were 15 years old, the legend, Stephen King, as we talk about his career, his books. We give our top five novels, our top five short stories. We'll talk about the adaptations, all of this, and so much more on this week's episode of the Uticast. Oh, yes. Uh, continuing our our run of themed episodes this week, although this theme is much less cringeworthy and painful than the last two weeks were for us. I see. Um, Kev, did you get any nice responses before we get into this week's episode about uh, last few weeks about our Blueprint Coercion recap episodes? Uh, no, none. No, <laughs> none. No, really? I haven't been. I'm not. I have not um, really been on social media of any kind or way or shape during the uh, pandemic times. So I've been avoiding all the major platforms except for like a bit of Instagram, I suppose. But we're not really out there. Well, shout out to your sister who showed off her blueprint T-shirt. Um, oh, I did see that. I, I saw that. It's like yes, I see that anyway. But I saw that. <laughs> uh, but thank you, to all the folks who reached out and uh, and seemed to enjoy uh, the pod. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Did you? Who did you get responding? Mean, did you get responses? A lot of my family reached out. It was, like, uh, it was one of those things with like, um, whenever it's something that my parents are aware of, they jump all over it and start like sharing it to the family. Yeah, so getting, yeah I'm getting yeah. calls from like cousins and uncles. Call, and, yeah, yeah. Cousins, like, oh, that was a nice thing. That was a nice thing you did. Uh, oh, no, I've had a, you know not a ton of people. I mean, I don't know how many people remember this stuff besides us. Anyway, I just thought really. It was less about, like, telling the story of the band than more about telling the story of us, I suppose. Sure. Right? Like, just telling the story of how we got to know each other. And uh, I would say so. Uh, and, yeah, and that's sort of where we're continuing on with this week's theme episode, where we're talking about something else that, as we've known each other for many years, has been very important to us, and that is the work of maybe the most prominent horror author of all time, one of my favorite authors ever, Stephen King. Sure. Absolutely. Favorite. Yeah. Couldn't make a case for anybody else. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm the author I've read the most of, been the most invested in. My so whole that's life. right, folks. This entire podcast is going to be about books. Books, yeah. And, well, and also movie and TV adaptations. We'll talk we'll get about into that as well. Stuff. That's the nice thing about a guy like Stephen King, though. He's one of the only authors I can think of, uh, modern authors specifically, who is prolific enough where you can discuss all this different stuff and a wide enough base of people will have an idea of what you're talking about. Even if you're just seeing the movies and like the different TV adaptations and things like that that people have seen... Or the books. If folks have yeah. read some books, they're likely to have read something by him. You're totally right. And I think what's interesting, too, is you see this sort of get discussed a lot. The mm-hmm. Stephen King renaissance was happening when the It movies came out. And, like, a lot of these ad- It happens, I think, every... It's it's cyclic. It's... It, mm-hmm. every Like, Stephen King comes back into, like, Vogue, it feels like, every now and then. He puts out so much work. Yeah. He's never really gone from the public sphere. I think that's something we should probably talk about, too, is... Just a wide breadth of content that he has when we were doing the prep for this episode. Just yeah. how much content there was. And it's only getting more. Not even was. Like, more and mm-hmm. more. The guy's the guy's written more books than he ever has now. And so you're certainly... 
you know, much like any band you like, where the newest albums are never going to be as good as those first bunch of albums, but there's still, like, a lot of good stuff on there. Oh, yeah. Still putting out good books. There's just tons of stuff coming out all the time. There's always more to look at. Now, before we dig into Stephen King proper, everything for this episode, there's one news-related thing I just wanted to mention. Okay. Uh, And I wanted to reference somebody who passed away this week, a guy I really, uh, I read a lot about this week, and that was... Uh, WWE professional wrestling ring announcer Howard Finkel passed mm. away earlier this this week. Um, yeah, yeah. And I just, as a guy who loves wrestling as much as I do, I spent a lot of time thinking about Howard Finkel, maybe the most recognizable voice in all of wrestling. I thought about growing up, like, the, the voices and characters I remembered. Bobby Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon and Mean Gene Okerlund. But, mm-hmm. but Howard Finkel was the voice you heard every time a big moment in wrestling would happen. When Hulk Hogan, you know, pinned... Andre the Giant, you know, and still, WWE, you heard that voice, that sort of announcer, and he had this sort of iconic announcer voice that I love so much, and for everything I've read about him over the last few days, he was like the kindest, nicest man in the world, and mm. just loved wrestling, yeah, yeah. and loved being a part of it, He's the lo- he was the longest tenured WWE employee going all the way back to uh, 1975. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, really interesting guy, uh, sad that he's gone. Just another, just one of those voices that I remember from growing up that sort yeah, of stuck yeah. with me over the years, the voice of Howard Finkel. It's interesting how people become more known for their voice than, you know, anything else. And I'm certain, like, you'll see the same thing with, like, broadcasters for games. Like, mm-hmm. I remember when Vin Scully, the guy from, like, the Dodgers. Vin Scully, I love Vin Scully. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or what was his name? Uh, Bob ball into the deep center field. Bob Mets. Shepard, who Bob used to Shepard. announce the Yankees games. Like, yes. all these different people who become Bob famous Shepard. for their announcing. It's, uh, what a weird niche to be into. Now batting, number two, Derek Jeter. Shepard, what a legend. My, my God. Yeah, I think about that a lot with baseball, too, because I think growing up listening to Charlie Sterling and um, and Steiner, right? Charlie Steiner, no, Charlie Steiner and was the other, John Sterling, calling games together. I was like, God, those voices, just, mm-hmm. I remember those. Ingrained in my brain forever. You know who else's voice is ingrained in my brain, in my brain forever? Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Not just his writing voice, his actual voice. <laughs> He's, yeah. A weird voice. He does have a weird voice. Um, so, do I have to tell I've told the Stephen King story before on this pod. Yes. I feel like. I don't mm. need to tell that story again here. Mm. Do I, do I, can I move past that story? Do I have to tell yeah. it? No. All right, you guys have heard the Stephen King story before. If you haven't, send me a message on Twitter. I'll send you the Stephen King story when I met him and creeped him out. Uh, one of the highlights, lowlights of my entire life. Uh, really tall guy. Really crazy tall. Uh, but I wanted to, I guess let's start here. Because we're going to do, in the second section, we're going to do a list of our top five Stephen King novels. Okay. And we're going to do a list of our top five Stephen King short stories, which was a tougher you gotta list, have it. it's tougher a list to compile. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things. For, for a guy who's known for, you know, yeah. all the novels, there's a lot of short stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tons of short stories. And yeah. I think sometimes his work tends to do better in short format. Not always, but something about that short format tends to him having some really interesting, memorable stories that you stick in You can do more head. stuff. You know, when yeah. you look at, I mean, when I look at something like, you know, some of my most coveted books by him, stuff like Skeleton Crew and Nightmares mm-hmm. and Dreamscapes, that are collections of short stories yeah. and novellas, like, you can just, in the same length that I would get a novel mm-hmm. the size of, you know, Salem's Lot or something like that, I get, you know, 20 different stories to read. And that's appealing to somebody who's, like, a reader who likes to read, but sometimes you just want something quick, like, before you go to bed or you don't have much time, or you just want to take it in more bite-sized pieces. And that's a nice off- uh, offering to have. Uh, I came around late to the Stephen King short stories, because as a mm. kid, my, and I guess this is a good place to start, because I want to talk about my first exposure to Stephen King. I really did read a lot of the classic, quote-unquote, Stephen King novels were my first real inkling in. Mm. Uh, and I think it started, weirdly, and I think some credit goes to 
the Goosebumps book series. Oh, absolutely. I, I think there's a really important... It's on Goosebumps and Fear Street. <laughs> yeah, Fear, Fear Street. Street. for sure. Uh, R.L. Stein... Break, you want to do top 15 Fear Street, I'm out here. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that like Goosebumps books... Send and... us a message on Twitter if you want us to do yeah. a Fear Street. If you want to come on to a Fear Street podcast, I'll do one with you. <laughs> if you guys, if I get a lot of pushback on Go- uh, Goosebumps, we'll do no, a no, Goosebumps but one you're, too. You're 100% correct. Yeah. Stephen King was the was that looking for more mm-hmm. after Goosebumps and Fear Street, but getting into like creepy stuff and creepy books and books that add horror and supernatural and elements like that to him. I also tend to think that Stephen King, and I could be off my timeline here so you can correct me if you want, Stephen King kind of killed the idea of like a Harry Potter for me. I had already read a bunch of like Stephen King books by the time like the Harry Potter thing was happening. Oh yeah, well that, it, that's just a matter of age. Right, but like Stephen King books felt so mature when I was younger because they touched on so many things like... Uh, relationships and sex and violence and stuff that I sure. had, you know, had not seen in like these early Goosebumps books or Fear Street books. Right, right. On. To go back to something that's like, and here's Dumbledore with his magical spell. I'm like, get the hell out of here with well, this. Right. <laughs> Do you I know what I mean? mean? Yeah. Like, I think Stephen King was that necessary bump in maturity that I wanted at that age. Maybe a little bit, slightly too young to start reading some of the stuff that I read for Stephen King, I wonder. Yeah, man, I don't know, maybe. Well, books are weird. Right? There's no ratings on books. Like, I didn't no. go buy Salem's Lot. And it's like, oh, you can't buy this because you're only 15, whatever it is, right? Like, no one stops you. Yeah, if you can, I mean, if you can read it, you should be able to read it. Like, if you can read it, I, I don't know, I'm not really into, like, kids, yeah, read the book if you want to read the book. I don't, there's nothing, mm-hmm. I read a lot of Stephen King really young. There were certainly things that were probably above, like, you mm-hmm. know, some specific recommended age levels. But, like, I think you handle it fine. You know, you're going to learn about it. The world is still the world. Uh, this is a really weird memory, but specifically, Goose, Goosebumps had gotten to a stage where they were starting to put out, like, spin-off Goosebumps books. They had, like, the Choose Your Own Adventures Goosebumps books. Yeah, I was out. I was all out. Started to be, the, yeah. I was already out there. Like, I was already into, I moved into the Fear Street, because that was, even, like, Fear Street, the difference between that and the Goosebumps was it was a little bit of a step up in the writing mm-hmm. and the subject material, and, like, people were all, they were all in high school, yeah. and there were, like, murders and, like, killers and different, like, secrets like uh-huh. that and everything, and it just felt a little more real. I didn't read a ton of the There's a real bridge between the two. Didn't read a ton of the Fear Street books, but one particular Fear Street book that becomes important is it was an early one about a kid who turns into a vampire. Yeah. How to become a vampire or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that book I read a million times. I love that book. And I don't care for vampire stuff in general. All the time. Not all the time. You have to say that now. In like a post like Twilight World, sometimes you're going to clarify yourself. A post True Blood World, a post you're like, listen... I'm not taking all the vampire yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. But well done vampire stuff is still yeah. great. You know, and you've still got like the Bram Stoker's Dracula um, and you know, some certain things like that where it's still... And as a kid, after reading that Fear Street book about you know the kid who turns into a vampire, I was like, God, it would be so cool to be a vampire. So there was a period of time when I was... We were walking of, around trying to be a vampire? Walking around trying to be a vampire. Not like... Just going around your neighborhood yeah. at night with like a duster on? Um, but, uh, you know, my parents were divorced and I used to go to the grocery store and Walmart and stuff with my mom all mm-hmm. the time as a kid. And... What I used to do at Walmart is she would go shopping for groceries or whatever, and I would sort of hang out in, like, the toy section or the book section. This is a different era when you could just leave your kid in, like, a section of the store and come I back. Still do that. You can now because they got cell phones, but this is, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was, people weren't happy about you just leaving your kid around the store back then. It wasn't kosher to, like, leave your kid in the magazine aisle and just let him read magazines while you were shopping. I feel like that's where the kids went. Is it? Yeah. I don't know. Well, either way, I remember being at Walmart all the time just going through the book section because they would have cheap paperback books mm-hmm. and specifically i had a copy of the book salem's lot which is the first stephen king book mm. that ever sort of found its way into my consciousness i don't think i was aware of stephen king before that mm-hmm. outside of maybe the movie misery which we'll get to later on mm-hmm. but salem's lot i was already invested in the vampire thing i'd already been into it and 
Salem's Lot opened up like a whole new world for me. Mm. I we'll get a good to place where, to start. It well, it felt like a good place to start, and I would still say that's a good place to start. If you hadn't read any Stephen King and you said you were going to start with Salem's Lot, I would say that's a pretty good starting point for somebody. Neither you or I, I don't believe, put the book Carrie on our list. No. Carrie seems to be pretty popular with the generation of people before us. Carrie's an old book. It it's was his first book. book. Yeah. And it, I'm, for us, Carrie is one of the few books of his that's probably been supplanted in a lot of ways by the movie adaptation. Mm-hmm. Like the original mm-hmm. movie, the one from the 70s, was was out, the yeah. one that everybody knows was Sissy Spacek and it's all horrified and covered in blood yeah. and burning the prom down and shit like mm-hmm. that. That has, that's crystallized as the carry for the culture yeah yeah so i think i think maybe you're right salem's lot is a good starting point really first time i'd ever understood the idea of how to like a writer builds atmosphere and character development with interesting characters who sound real and even for a book that came out in 1975 it feels like a more modern vampire story than even some of the stuff i see today about that's something that's something i think about a lot of his books because a lot of his classic books when you talk about all those first ones that come out like the heavy hitters the names you know that any Mm -hmm. top 10 list you're going to see of his books there's a lot of these books coming out in the 70s and the 80s and when you go back and read them now with eyes today, you can still read them and they're still very accessible outside of like some of the specific like maybe pop cultural references or mm-hmm. like different things that have changed. The writing doesn't feel dated and the stories don't feel dated, which I think is an important key to his longevity and people still discovering yeah. these stories, you know, in 2020 when this guy wrote the book in 1975. Uh, Salem's Lot was my hook, but let's let's go to your side. What was your first Stephen King book that sort of found its way into your ecosystem um so i knew about stephen king because i remember my mom read stephen king books and mm-hmm. my aunt margaret was a big stephen king reader i remember she used to uh she was subscribed to a stephen king collection where they'd send these hardcover like leather bound feeling hardcover red books with a title printed in yep. gold down the side of each stephen king book like the mm, stephen king library it was yeah. probably like a monthly nice fee and they send you the books or whatever kind of thing like that sure. and she had the whole set and she had a bunch of paperbacks and so she gave them to me, and I remember being um, aware of, like, the movies. I remember Misery being aware of that, because I remember, like, yeah. it being around when I was a kid, and some other things, probably Pet Cemetery. But really thinking about it, unless I sat down and combed through the list, I think the first Stephen King book I read might have been It. Mm. I think It was it, probably yeah. the first book that I read. And that was, I mean, I was, I'm still reeling. Uh, I'm still <laughs> reeling from the first time I read It. It's a really interesting point, actually, that you bring up about the book club thing. My neighbors, shout out to my old neighbors when I was kids, the Browers. Shout out yeah, to the yeah, Browers. shout out to the Browers. Uh, the Browers, I don't know if it was the mom or the dad, but they had a bookshelf in their living room, and I remember going over to play with the kids, yeah. the neighbors in my house, and they had this bookshelf in there, and one of the books on the bookshelf was, I don't know if it was an early copy, it was an original copy of It mm. with the picture of like the hands coming out of the sewer and the boat coming down. It's really minimal. Yeah. I don't know what edition it is, so Stephen King fans don't come at me. But yeah, yeah. yeah. But I remember just the image of the book itself, mm-hmm. and the picture, and the and the font, and yeah. like the it was so mm-hmm. foreboding that it stuck mm-hmm. with me, even though I didn't understand what it was. Well, that was I mean that was back in the time you know you really are kind of grabbing people with the cover of your book. I mm-hmm. also remember now that I think about it, um, on the opposite side of the family from my mother, um, at my grandparents' house, my dad's side of the family, yeah. my uncle Donnie had. He wasn't living at my grandparents' house, mm. but, like, he had moved out, like, not super long ago. He still had a lot of books mm. there upstairs, like, in a room at my yeah. grandparents' house, right? And I remember going through that bookshelf, and he had a lot of Stephen King. And I found a lot of cool ones up there that they were like, yeah, you can just take them. Like, you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're a reader. Like, everybody's giving you books like you do. And that's where I got the uh, the copy of the Bachman books, which was, like, oh, those yeah, first four Bachman, Bachman books, books in hardcover. Ooh. 
which was one of the things where I remember reading and being like, yo, this is crazy, and discovering these books and reading that upstairs bedroom at my grandparents' house. That's a good uh, segue. I was just about to talk about Richard Bachman. Uh, yeah. For a long time, uh, Stephen King had a pseudonym, another yeah, yeah, writing yeah. title. A pen name. A pen he would write, name. Yeah, write names yeah. under this, just put them out under Richard Bachman. Uh, and I, again, I think it had already been discovered by the time we got into some Stephen King. Some nerds at the time, some yeah. like librarian or <laughs> yeah. somebody, it was like a librarian or some reporter or some weird person yeah. discovered. I don't think any of the books that I'm discussing in my lists were under the Bachman books. Mm. Uh, but for the sake of argument, that's a fun little side note for Stephen King's career is yeah, the Richard yeah. Bachman books and you can get them collected. You, you can get like the first four collected then there's all the actual, mm. like the novels and stuff like that. Well, what's the one, what's the, What's the controversial Bachman one? Is it Rage? That's Rage. The stu- yeah. It's like the school shooting-esque one. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah, there's... I mean, it's definitely... It's about... The protagonist is this kid who goes nuts. At his, yeah. It's the 70s. He goes nuts in his high school. And there is... He's got a gun. And it's not like school shooting, like school shootings are now. Right. But he, like, takes the class mm-hmm. hostage. And then the class has this, like... It's like the Breakfast Club, but if the Breakfast Club, if Judd Nelson had taken them in the library with a gun <laughs> right. and shot the principal, then made them talk about their feelings, yes, that's what the book Rage is like. It's actually not um, as controversial when I read it as I had expected. No, it's not so bad. It was the 70s. I mean, they were soft then. Um, I was going to make, I could have made a case for uh, the novel Thinner. Is that a Bachman book? Yeah. yeah. Richard Bachman. Thinner. Yeah. Thinner. Uh, mm-hmm. Thinner was really good. They made that movie about it. Remember the gypsy? Thinner. Thinner. Yeah, with the rotting yeah. nose. You may have seen that. Um, thinner. To varying degrees of success, but the novel was really effective. The idea thinner, the idea of the movie and the novel thinner doesn't necessarily seem scary at first thought, I think, is the problem with that book. Like, it doesn't seem, it's like, oh, he's getting thinner. It's like, well, that doesn't seem scary at first. And then right. like, now it's really scary. <laughs> right? You're like, oh God, wait, no, never mind. Uh, so, uh, two things I wanted to bring up that I'm not going to discuss otherwise, but I felt like were important to bring up. One is the Dark Tower series. Uh, almost every Stephen King list I went over to do our research on this talks about the Dark Tower series. Kevin and I have discussed... What is the Dark Tower series, for people who don't know? Uh, I don't even know how to explain it. It's his sort of fantasy series that he did. It's an extended universe that also crosses into certain aspects of the main Stephen King continuity in ways... But it, it follows like the gunslinger and that's the, a so it's a so it's, it's, it's wild right so it's a it's a series of seven books that um it's set in like a fantasy world where he's got this hero going to fight like you know the dark over villain yeah and it's a set of just like these seven books that tell a continuous story that's a series in the way that like a Harry Potter Lord of the Rings that type of series yes. is put together yeah. that he put out separate from the rest of his books and sort of lives cordoned off in its own world and the people who like the Dark Tower books love them, love them they yeah. say they're their favorites. They say they're the best ones, but neither you nor I has Never. read any of them. And I've said for a long time it's because I have sort of a, a weird aversion to, like, hard fantasy. Yeah, I, I same. And I'm same. sure that... And we even said it last night when we were talking about this in prep. I'm sure if you gave me the Dark Tower books and said, read these, and I sat down and read them, I'm sure I'd find a lot of enjoyment in them. It's still Stephen King. It still probably has a lot of the, sure. the, the tropes that I People love. People like them for yeah. a reason. Yeah. It's just not necessarily my thing. And, uh, and one other thing I want to talk about is a book he wrote, a nonfiction book called On Writing, mm-hmm. which is a really excellent book. It's just not a, it's just not a horror story. <laughs> it's just a really, really well-made book about the art of being a writer and his story of writing, and mm-hmm. it's really well done. It's just not a horror book, and I didn't put it on my list for anything else, and I wanted to mention it. Yeah. Um, can we talk about Stephen King tropes before we get into our list? I found a list earlier. Bad endings. Yeah, that was one on the list. Weak endings. endings. Do you think that's a... An unfair criticism, or do you think it's sort of earned? No, I don't think it's unfair. I don't think it's. Yeah. Not, I mean, it's not. 
I obviously like I love the guy's books and I've read all these books and I'm a big fan and I evangelize mm-hmm. for these books or whatever. So obviously I like them and it hasn't ruined it for me. But I think it would be fair to say that if he, if you were listing him like you were talking about some athlete or some of the things you're listing what they're good at, what they're bad at, what their pros and cons are, yeah. their pluses and minuses, you would have to accept that he can write some lackluster endings. Books just kind of end. I mean, one of my all-time favorite books, The Stand Tattoo. I have it tattooed in my arm. One of my all-time favorite books ever written. The Stand not, is the example they not give, a, specifically. Not a great ending. It's just yeah. Good. yeah. It's, there are good They're endings, also, It's also overblown, though. Yes. Like, it's also overblown, the notion that they're all so bad. Because, like, even The Stand, like, it's not a great ending, but it's not, like, a horrible ending. It's no, not it's bad. Not. It doesn't ruin the book in any way. It's all right. It's just hard. It, it's such a build-up to get there. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think, th- and because of that, the endings that I think where Stephen King lands the ending... The one because they do exist. There's a some we're going to talk about coming up that I think the ending is really good. Uh, those tend to stick out more because of it because I almost expect his endings to fall a tiny bit flat now when I read Stephen sure. King book going in. So sure, and it's also I think a lot of the books I tend to like um, tend to go towards like the ending is a part of the book, but like then you mm-hmm. got the rest of the book, and if the rest of the book and the yep. journey to that place is yeah. good, like I don't. It depends how much weight you ascribe to the ending, and mm-hmm. if the ending, the last you know, hundred pages or so, are more valuable than all the pages that come before. Uh, another trope: uh, continuity. Uh, you know, even before the era of like the Marvel extended universe and like people wanting these big extended continuous universes where everything connects. Stephen King was on this in like the eighties. See, a lot of his universe connects in all sorts of books. There's tieovers and little Easter eggs that make more sense if you've read other books that come before it and they tie into other books later on and just look interesting in clever ways. Uh, really ahead of his game, I think. And I think novels allow that a little bit more than like other media as well. Yeah, I mean, you're putting out stuff over such a long period of time. Like, sure, I mean, he wrote, you know, what was uh, ostensibly a sequel to The Shining or a continuation <laughs> of like The Shining. It was like 30, 40 some odd years later, you know what I mean? And that's cool to be able to do that. And I think that's something you can do when you write books is put out what you want, when you want. And because... Like you said, it's not like he's got. It's not Marvel. You know what I mean? It's not that. No, but, ki- it's not that kind of thing where everybody, everything is tied in. and Everybody's tied in by hiding the Easter eggs and the way where you can write stuff later on down the road and be like, you know, maybe I can make this sort of fold into here and wrinkle into here is a really interesting way to approach it. If you're going to be so pro- like prolific and put out so many different works, yeah. But I do think he he does build universes like the idea of this like these towns like Derry and Castle Rock that exist. Yeah, yeah. Where it, it, it's not that the. It's not like the Marvel movies where there's different characters popping up in different books. It's, but, I'm just I'm basically saying yeah. where it's not every single book is not tied together. No, but there are deep connections you can find if you look deep enough, especially if you know enough about the lore that you can go find. And if you're a big nerd for Stephen King, that's like an extra layer of excitement for you to go back and read the books again or like dig deeper for stuff if you want to. Sure. Um, another one is that writers are the protagonists. This is pretty common. Yeah. I think this is just simply I'm writing myself in mm-hmm. as a character. Do you feel like this ever bothers you when you're reading like Stephen King book and there's always like an obvious writer character? No, I mean, I mean he had those, like, you know, especially in some of his earlier books. But like you say about a guy who keeps putting out this many books, yeah. I think he heard that and stopped and yeah. doesn't do it and hasn't done it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, no, there's plenty where it's that. And it's still an interesting character, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know, you could be a writer, you could be whatever you want. That's two years, that's what he knows, so mm-hmm. it makes sense that that's what he would write. And the last one is uh, Kids in Danger. And I think this is an interesting one because Stephen King has done a really nice job of kids in, portraying kids in danger in a way that like Steven Spielberg does not. And I think that's it, that's the comparison I want to make because I watch a Steven Spielberg movie. Like Jurassic mm-hmm. Park is a really good example. 
I knew those kids weren't going to get eaten by those raptors. And you don't right. want them to get eaten by the raptors. It's like a PG-13 movie, and it's like an adventure movie, right? Right. But you never... There's no moment where you are genuinely concerned for those kids because they're like the main kids in the movie, and they're not going to get eaten by raptors. Yeah, and Spielberg, yeah, yeah. he wants to leave you feeling good. Stephen King has no qualms, in the book specifically, about killing off like well, kids. Anybody. And, yeah. I mean, well, there's, there's, much higher, there's much higher stakes, and there's much more reality. Like, it's just a different level yeah. of... A different level and depth of entertainment, like between those two different things. Like, yeah, you. Yeah. I mean, there's kids are in danger because the world is in danger, yeah. and like, there's dangerous, bad things happening in a lot of the books. But even as a little kid reading like books before this, I never expected danger to befall the main characters, right? Like, if I was reading like The Bridge to Terabithia, I didn't expect the main character to get eaten by sure. a zombie or something, right? Or yeah. didn't expect Matilda to lose at the end of that book, right? In it, there's like kids around your age getting killed by clowns. You're like, wow, I thought that person was going to be a part of this book, and now they're not. Right. right. So I liked the stakes of it. It it raised it it brought a level of excitement that I had not yet previously experienced in my fictional reading enjoyment. Yeah. Right? And I think that's interesting too. And I haven't read that uh, the institute. I know is sort of about kids. You started reading that. You said right. Uh, I don't yeah. know if there's like a level sure. of danger that you feel about the kids in that, but. I mean, I, I always thought he did a really good job of not making it feel like people were protected. Like, anyone was... Yeah, yeah. Anyone was, was yeah, there, yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, all right. That's all I really have for our setup. We can take a quick break and get into our next section. Do we want to talk about spoilers before we get into this? Like, I assume we're going to end up spoiling a lot of this stuff by having these general discussions, right? Yeah. So, I guess, folks, if you, you know, a lot of this stuff is old. <laughs> so, if you haven't, like, if you don't know the ending to The Stand or Pet Cemetery, I don't know. Take, a, take this break and look it up on the internet or something. Or read the book and then come back to this episode later. You have a lot yeah, of time. Yeah. Read all the books. Read all the books and then come back. But we are going to talk in depth, I think, a lot about at least a bunch of these books. Read a lot of these books dirt cheap used on Amazon. Oh my God, crazy cheap. One of the things you can be doing right now during the quarantine, you need some books, get on Amazon, go to like used for a lot of these books that are old. You'll get them in like very good or like decent condition, whatever. Mm -hmm. But it'll be like a dollar. Yeah. So you can read anything you yeah. want. That's a great point. Uh, all right. So let's take a quick break and we will get into our top five lists for Stephen King novels and Stephen King short stories. could get a little bit mm, spooky maybe a little bit frightening if you will i quit <laughs> save for halloween that's what i say oh sorry that's what i say. i couldn't help myself uh so kev how would you like to start would you like to start with the short stories or would you like to start with the novels you gotta start with the novels i'm gonna start with the novels you have to yeah all We're right gonna... well let's do this in back and forth well serpentine style do you want to go, we'll go five to one uh, do you want to go sure. first, or are shall you, I go first? Um, I, are you going in like an order? What do you? I'm do going you five do? to one. I'm going five to one from yeah. my uh, five, my least favorite, my least of these five favorite to number one, my most favorite of these five. Okay. Yeah. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, I do. All right. I'm going to go for a, outside the box here with my first pick. Uh, this one, my number five book, is from 1996. It is a novel called Desperation. 
Uh, this is probably a novel that is not high on the list for a lot of people in the Stephen King universe. I don't think this is a very popular Stephen King novel. I think Stephen King people are into desperation. Well, when I was doing a lot of the list. It was falling in somewhere in that like middle category. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's and I'm not going to sit it's here. A deep cut. It's a deep cut. I'm not going to sit here and say it's an absolutely perfect Stephen King novel. Well, in, inherent in making lists like these, right? Like, because mm-hmm. we kind of we sort of talked about it. Like, you want to make sure you don't have the exact same list, yes. and you want to make sure like there's points you can make, there's things you can reach. So there's certain books that you'll ride for where it's like, listen, I really like this one. I want to talk about it. So that's how that works. Right. This was it initially, but I wanted to talk about desperation. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, this book is in what's interesting about this book. We talked about Richard Bachman. This book was published in 1996 along with a mirror novel called The Regulators. Right. And what's interesting about this book is they have The Regulators and Desperation have the same characters in them, but playing different roles in so a like vastly an anthology different. series yeah basically like the same way like um, when you watch american horror story one season these same actors are playing yeah. these roles yeah next season same actors different roles yeah represent parallel alternate universes to one another and most of the characters are, exist in the other albeit in different circumstances uh regulators is a tough read and i have a i could never finish regulators yeah I'll i tried yeah it's 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 ambitious. It's just not well. I literally, I think I still have the copy that you let me borrow yeah. when we were like 18 on that bookshelf in there. And I've, I can't finish it. Uh, so Desperation. I never read Desperation, though. Desperation I've heard, I've been close on Desperation a couple uh, times. And I've just never pulled the trigger. Desperation is, I'll give you the quick plot overview, is a story about several people who travel along a uh, desolated Highway 50 in Nevada who get abducted by a sheriff deputy, or sorry, deputy named Kali Entrogen who takes them to a fictional town called Desperation and puts them in jail. Uh, this goes into a farther story where there's possessions by an evil being named Tack, really leans into the, the heavy Lovecraft uh, influence that you see in a lot of Stephen King stuff. Yeah. It's a little cosmic. It's just a really interesting story about setting and plot and... It's none of the characters in it stand out to me in a way that like the stand do or Pet Cemetery, but the world building in it is really impressive. It do you remember the video game Silent Hill? Uh sure. Yeah, yeah. Silent Hill was a video game where there's a, like the whole game you're walking through like five. So it's atmospheric. It's super atmospheric. It's atmospheric. It's, so as so as opposed to focusing on the characters, which is something he's pretty known for. So yes. it's a little more atmospheric, you would say. And the characters are interesting. The first forty five pages of this book are amazing. Like, the build-up to get to the end is better than the end. Again, in typical Stephen King fashion. But, sure. man, a really underrated atmosphere book, The Town of Desperation, and the sort of, like, desolate feeling that he builds with the sand and the desert location is really interesting because a lot of his stuff seems to take place in, like, rural Maine or, like, these suburbs. Used but to, yeah. It's a really interesting, like, divergence in terms of setting and location that I really liked. And right. I think it's a really cool book that no one talks about. Yeah, it's one of those ones, like I said, I've never read it, but I've, I have almost read it a bunch of times. Uh, we'll mention it later on in adaptations, but a really poor um, miniseries adaptation of this that uh, really brought me down. A lot of bad miniseries. Yeah, it's tough. A lot of bad um, miniseries. All right, so Kev, do you want a number five for you? Sure, I'll mm. I'll do, uh, we'll do a nice little transition here. We'll say bad something with a bad miniseries on mm. The Shining. Ooh, The Shining. Number um, five, The Shining. The Shining was in and out, almost didn't make my list. Not that I dislike it, but the, the guy's got like 60 books, and there's, I can only pick five. Yeah. Uh, same for me, I think. What, what about Shining stands out particularly for you? Um, the Shining, I think I think the real thing that I push out for The Shining is that I the 
you can't talk about The Shining without talking about the movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. I know we're going to do adaptations later, yep. um, but so many people have seen the movie, and if you haven't read the book, mm-hmm. I just, I like the book so much because of the way it stands apart from the movie. Yes. Because of the way that it stands apart from the movie, and not to knock or detract from the movie and all that whole thing, but like, it's really, it's just it's just a great book. The thing lacking in the movie, the, the Kubrick movie, is any sort of narrative or backstory to why Jack Torrance is the way he is. Yeah, there's yeah. No, you there's you are left, it. there's none of it. Which is the book. But, yeah. Which is the book. Yeah, like, exactly. that whole yeah. crux of... The problem with The Shining is, like, the actual... With, you know, a movie adaptation is... Mm-hmm. The crux of that book is happening in Jack Torrance's head. That is correct. It's his battle mm-hmm. with madness in this hotel that they're locked in. And all these different things that he mm-hmm. sees, thinks, feels, and experiences when he's on his own. And you can only show so much of that in the movie... They try with some different stuff with the bartender, like the yeah. bathroom attendant, these people he's imagining, but the book really delves into like how this place takes him, and it's stuff that you can't really put the same way in a movie because there's so much internal monologue. I do have takes about the movie that I want to talk about later and adaptations, but I will say this. The reason that The Shining did not make my list of top five, even though I think it's a masterpiece of mm-hmm. like writing, because I had seen the movie beforehand, the book was always tainted to me by seeing Jack Nicholson and seeing Shelley Duvall and Scatman Carruthers and that stupid kid who I couldn't look at his dumb face, Danny Tatar, mm. whatever his name is. I don't know, that kid sucks. Anyway, uh, I just couldn't read the book and not hear like Jack Nicholson's voice in my head doing the Jack Torrance see, yeah. stuff. When I read The Shining, yeah. I see uh, Brian Weber. That seems so much I worse. Stephen whole... Weber, no, no, so no, much no. worse. Stephen Weber, yeah, yeah. No, so it's. It's not because he did a better job of playing the guy in the book. Yeah, but that miniseries is unwatchable. Miniseries is unwatchable. it's watchable. Yeah, I mean it's not it's great, not but it's great. it's not unwatchable. Uh, no, I think The Shining. Um, I want to talk about The Shining later because I think it, it's hard to disassociate it with the movie. The, yeah, the yeah. only reason I wouldn't re- I I would recommend The Shining yeah. as somebody's first Stephen King book to read, mm-hmm. but the only thing that might caution me from doing that is the fact that you're it's going to be hard to decouple it yes. from your experience uh, with the movie mm-hmm. and with it and culture and stuff like that. Uh, Dr. Sleep almost made my list for here as well. Uh, mm. Dr. Sleep, not a phenomenal like book, not b- mind-blowing, but a really worthy uh, success sequel to a movie, a book that probably shouldn't have had a sequel, or didn't need to have a sequel. Yeah, it's not really... It's a sequel, but it's not really like a sequel-sequel, I feel like. No, that's right, and I, I think that's the best way to do it, though. Yeah. I don't need another story it's about... It's not The Shining yeah. 2. Yeah, It's very correct. specifically not The Shining yeah. 2. Uh, All right, so let me get to number four on my list, Uh Uh, and this one is from 1975. I've already talked about it. Uh, That is Salem's Lot. Uh, Story involves a writer named Ben Mears who returns to the town of Jerusalem's Lot, a.k.a. Salem's Lot in Maine, where he lived for the ages of five through nine, only to discover the residents have become vampires. Uh, This book, interestingly enough, was revisited in a couple different short stories, specifically uh, Jerusalem's Lot and On the Road from the book Night Shift in 1978. Uh, Salem's Lot, like I said, the first Stephen King book that I ever read, mm-hmm. and I and I don't want to repeat myself too much, it really kind of ruined vampire stuff for me going forward. It was such a cool take, because okay. yeah, it was such an interesting take on vampires. It, I'd never seen that idea that, like, they sent this, like, you know, he sends the scout along, essentially, to, like, get this whole house set up for him and stuff, and the way they sort of infiltrated the town in this sort of clandestine way, and... Mm. The paranoia with the kid and the old, and the and the priest and the and the guy trying to make their way back into town and yeah. and Ben and the kid is just it's really well done and the paranoia builds up and up and it's a lot of the horror almost comes off 
the page. Just the idea of what's going on, like sure. the, the insidious nature of the way that they were sort of infiltrating the town mm-hmm. and what they had to do to end the threat at the end and just, you know, burn the whole town down. It's just, it's a really, really, really well-crafted vampire story. I just love the way it's crafted and I love the horror and the descriptive nature of it and it's just awesome. It's really sure, I think one of the things that, that makes Salem's Lot a little bit different than what you look at as a standard mm-hmm. vampire story I think a lot of vampire stories tend to be really individualized, mm-hmm. um, and that's I think that's kind of what you're getting at is the notion that you know a lot of like when you think about like a Dracula or Nosferatu, all that mm-hmm. stuff, it's that vampire. There's a vampire, and you know the vampire is going after individual victims at a time. But mm-hmm. I think that notion of this vampire sort of creeping into like an old mm-hmm. decrepit town where it can fly under the radar and they find minions to like do its bidding and all that is a bit of a different take, and it gives it mm-hmm. larger, more real life stakes than just vampire a stalks victim one two three four five or whatever it might be uh there's a really interesting scene in the novel that's only okay in the movie between uh the priest of the town father callahan and these the vampire character count barlow and it kind of goes against typical like vampire tropes and subverts the concept a little bit and it's really spooky and eerie and that kind of stuck with me as well like it didn't have to be dracula do you mean it didn't have to be like ah there's a garlic and a cross do you know what i mean Mm. it was it felt very i don't know it it was dirtier and grimier than i expected for vampire fiction i just loved it it was it was so edgy yeah it was was so edgy so edgy was at the time Um, though yeah i know i think it's it's a it was a cool notion to to get away from the idea that the vampire had to be like this you know hair combed well groomed like (laughs) yeah european royalty Mm. count seeming figure you know what i mean the notion like vampire as a thing probably be a little, like a lot grosser and more of a monster. There was an adaptation of this movie from 1979. It is a two-part television miniseries. Um, I didn't put it on my miniseries list. I do watch it like once a year around Halloween. It's not good. Sure. I just got kind of, I don't know why I like it. It's charming. It's just, yeah. it's not... Uh, I've it's, never seen it's, it. It's, it's, you're not missing anything. No. Outside of the font, the font, go look at the poster. The poster for the movie is dope. Everything mm. else... Nah, miss me with that. Mm. Uh, all right, Kevin, what's your number four for Stephen King novels? Uh, for my number four, I'm going to take a 2011 book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen King still writes books. Uh, 11 uh, uh, which they did make that miniseries about Hulu on too. But 11 is a book about um, this guy. He's an English teacher, I think. He's kind of like down on his luck. He's doing his thing. He's just some guy, whatever. Befriends somebody and he goes back in time. He finds a time portal, mm-hmm. goes back in time to the time of when uh, JFK was going to be assassinated and he's got to stop JFK's assassination. And he goes back in time and it's really, really interesting and well done. Um, it's an amazing story about people with really excellent characters because this guy goes back to the 60s yes. and like he's living a full life. He's there for like stretches at a time. Uh, it's a great take on time travel and if you're into history at all or any of that kind of stuff, it's a really, really welcome um, broadening of the horizons of Stephen King writing because it's still unmistakably his voice and his style and the way he writes, yeah. you know, uh, character relations, you know what I mean, and people, like, you know, getting along with one another, people building these relationships and deepening characters, mm-hmm. but it's sort of slanted in a different direction than just specifically, like, dark horror stories, you know what I mean? It's a little bit sunnier, even though the historical context is bleak, and there's still a lot of that bleakness and heartbreak to mm-hmm. it, but I think it's just, it stands out as kind of a different uh, taste for him. And I really, really enjoyed it. One of my two major Stephen King regrets I have listed here for books I've not gotten around to for Stephen King is eleven twenty two sixty three. The other being the Dead Zone. Uh, mm, I read I, the Dead Zone. Yeah, Dead, Dead Zone, zone is short. You could read the Dead Zone in an, You could read the <laughs> Dead Zone this afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Like if after we record this, you grab the Dead Zone, you'd be done before you go to yeah. bed. 
Uh, I've also heard the movie adaptation of that is good as well, and I've never seen that either. Yeah, the he had this, they had the show. Is a show? We were, yeah. Yeah, I did both. Um, I don't know, do you have any other takes on that before? Have you seen the TV adaptation of this, 112263? Oh, it's amazing. It's one of the best adaptations. Yeah. It's one of the far and away the best adaptations of anything he's ever done. Mm. It's excellent. Let me ask you this question because this is something I wonder, and it's not a spoiler for me. Is this book scary? What? 112263. Um, no, no, not at all. Is getting old scary? <sighs> It's the scariest thing in the world, bro. Yeah, then I guess it's scary. Like there's, <laughs> no, no, there's no, some of that. There's some of the notion of like passing of time and like different that kind of thing that you get. It's inherent with time travel, but no, it's not scary at all. Well, I only ask that because I think there's this. I don't know if it's a misnomer necessarily that Stephen King is a horror author. He's not a horror only author. Like some of the most interesting Stephen King. Well, especially movies, later yeah. now, like a lot of these takes. Like even when earlier when you were, I think last segment, you were mm-hmm. talking about like the tropes and stuff like yep. that. A lot of them are like bum ass two thousand four takes. Well, that's why I wanted to bring them up. Where actually. like the guys, yeah. where the guys written like you know, fifteen years worth of books since then. Correct. Same kind of thing. All right, number three. Time for number three. Give me your number three. All right, my number three is from nineteen eighty nine. Uh, this is the psychological horror novel Misery. Mm, uh, a great choice. This one I like because there's really, it's really insular. There's mm. no. Supernatural creeping horror. This is uh, fandom gone wrong. It's like toxic fandom. Like I, I don't know. It's like a uh, an author who's a bad character, like a bad person, and a fan who loves their work and is obsessed with it. And it feels more relevant as time goes on mm. uh, in a way that I didn't expect. The idea of people feeling ownership over things that they love, and this sort of urge to have this everything be the way they want it to be, yeah. and fighting against change. That all feels really relevant today for a book that came out. In 1987. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for folks who don't know, the novel is based on the relationship of two characters, popular writer Paul Sheldon and his psychotic fan, Annie Wilkes. Um, he's seriously injured following a car accident. Uh, his nurse, Annie, the nurse Annie brings him to her house uh, where he receives treatment. Uh, however, she becomes more psychotic and angry as she realizes what he's done in his new novel. And she sort of holds him prisoner and forces him to do what she wants. If you yeah. haven't seen the book, I don't want to spoil it. It's... There's nothing about it that's, you know, it, there's no horror tropes that you would typically expect from like a, a Stephen King horror novel. There's no supernatural. Well, I think that that's correct. There's definitely yeah. plenty of horror, but there's no supernatural. It's so real. That's what I think scared me so much about this book. You know, mm. not that like something like this would ever happen to me. Like some obsessed podcast fan would keep me hostage. You can in still house. get kidnapped. I mean, you don't, right. You don't but, need the framing of the situation to but, relate to the situation at all. But I like the framing of him being this sort of like jaded, popular, successful author yeah. who's unaware of the feelings of the people who are even like making him successful. There's sure. that sort of narrative to it as well. Sure. So really, the relationship between the two characters is so strong. Right, like it's the power struggle between the two of them, and the dynamic between the two of who has the power in the scenario. It's just masterful. It's it's such a a really well fleshed out because it's really just these two characters. The whole novel, essentially, you really get a really deep characterization into their psyche, and you sort of. It, it's one of the few novels where I almost feel bad for the villain because you. It's she's not evil in the way that like a clown or uh, a ghost or a evil car would be. Do you know what I'm saying? She's a real person, sure, and you can feel it on both sides of it. Yeah, well, I think I mean it. It speaks to you know when you talk about the range and the variance and everything like that. Like when you with your pick of desperation uh, a few ago, 
you know, we talked what we talked about specifically is there weren't really the characters and the story and these people, and it was so large and about like the atmosphere mm-hmm. and all that. And this is a complete 180 and into an even better book where it's two to like probably like four characters the whole time through, mm-hmm. like a couple other people that come in, but it's just this really tight, small, mm-hmm. dense story in a small place. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a really interesting experiment experience, and it's a nice take mm-hmm. where it sort of carves out its own little niche along from like the broad center main beef of the Stephen King like you know bibliography uh the Paul Sheldon character King has said in the past uh was his uh representation of feeling chained to horror fiction the Uh idea of Paul Sheldon being chained to the misery books that he writes in story uh was him feeling chained to the idea of writing horror fiction yeah Uh, so which is really again you talk about the writer as protagonist this is the ultimate example of writer as protagonist but I think it's also dead on for this story it makes this story work as well as it does it's Mm. the perfect way to represent this story if you were remaking this story today instead of an author what would that person be like a youtube star i don't know definitely (laughs) definitely 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 like what's the what would be the equivalent today of something people would get obsessed over that you could like i don't don't even know i I have to think of what it would be but i I mean it could be anything there's there's anybody there's all Mm. sorts of uh we'll talk about movie adaptations with again at the end this is probably one of the better. This is a great movie. Yeah, I was this. Movie. This is definitely yeah. in the. This is towards the top yeah, of his strongest top. adaptations. Like yeah. the movie, even if you've never, for a lot of people, you know, because we, you know, for all this stuff you say about the book, like most people know this story because of the movie. A lot more people have seen this movie yeah. than they've probably read the book. And the book itself is excellent and maze, and you know, as always, better than the movie. But the movie is no slouch. The movie Misery is great. You know what's nice about Misery too, and it's something we will probably get into as we get into the next couple books on our list. Misery is a tight book. It is not yep. a thousand pages long. It is tight mm-hmm. and concise. It's probably I want to. I'm probably guessing, but I bet you it's like 400 pages. For long. sure. I bet you it's short. Yeah. Uh, 420 pages. It is a, a real quick read, uh, and especially because of the two only two characters, you don't want it to be too much longer. Right. It's it's really really well done. Mm-hmm. All right, Kevin, number three for you. What's your number three? Uh, number three, 1978's The Stand, but mm. you have to read the uncut version. <laughs> that is correct. The unabridged version. There's no, I don't even, um, you don't even make the other version, but if you stumble upon one, like a thrift store or something, don't read it. You need the full, full hit. This, uh, this is our first crossover that's on both of our lists. Yeah. Uh, I, have, I think our lists are probably the same the rest of the way out, I bet. Uh, I only have one more after this. I didn't put one of yours on my list. All right, whatever. Yeah. Right. Uh, so go ahead. You, you had stand number three. Well, no, where were you... Well, you're on number three. Stand is your number three. So yeah, go yeah. ahead. Why'd you put stand at your number three? I have it at number two. Um, I had to put it in there because I have to, but it's not better than the top two. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's just not. It's uh, it's just fundamentals. It's it's the stand is a great book, and you know it's it's very relevant in our times and all that. Um, specifically yeah. right now, but uh, the stand is a post-apocalyptic dark fiction novel. Uh, plots uh, centers around a pandemic of a weaponized strain of influenza that kills almost the entire world population. Uh, few survivors unite in groups, establish a new social system, and engage in confrontation with each other. This uh, was, as Stephen King has said in the past, this was his sort of attempt to create an epic story in the line of like a Lord of the Rings or something. But he wanted to set it in like a contemporary American. Uh, setting as opposed to which is wild because I don't see I don't I don't see that at all I don't even understand I don't remotely understand really? that comparison yeah well I think the idea I've of never having... I've never read the Lord of the Rings either I guess so I don't know well I don't care for the Lord of the Rings so I don't sure. like that comparison but I get it like the idea of a 
Because, like, Lord of the Rings and stuff like that feels like it's very Eurocentric. It feels like it takes place in, like, medieval I fantasy Europe. That. I think the idea of taping a big epic story where there's, like, a spanning different lands and people you come across and characters, but take that and put it in a setting that feels contemporary to what we expect, right? I, I love post-apocalyptic fiction. I just yeah, love yeah. it. I love it, I love it, I love it. And I think that because this felt like... I remember reading this since, like, it's set in New York and it's set in, you know, Colorado and in places that feel home it made this hit harder for me i wouldn't have cared about this if it was like in the land of wherever and no yeah i don't yeah i don't really see it much like a fantasy book like that like i don't mm -mm. i understand the like it's big and like spans all these things but i don't yeah. i don't see it like that no the the thing for me that i think is interesting about this book is it's the the most interesting part of the book is the first chunk of it where everything is going down and side is yes. falling apart and these people are getting sick and everybody's striding out into like these are the characters we're gonna follow and this is how they're going to blow out these little threads from this big collapse and then intertwine as everything goes on. But that initial part of it is what's interesting because it is, you know, even more so now, but even anytime you read it, it's something that you can identify with that's not, you know, again, later in the book, they get into like some, some I guess what you would call supernatural, like different elements of like dark yeah. versus light and stuff like that. But at the beginning of the book, there's nothing supernatural about it. This is just what would happen if something came around that was that bad that killed and when you say almost everybody i mean like 97 98 of the population mm -hmm. some wild number of people and yeah. so that's really interesting and just the denseness of the book the the wide array of characters and the richness and attention that it gives to each character it's i mean there's a reason the book's what like 1200 pages long uh is 1152 yeah so yeah. there's a reason for that because they get into there's just so much it's such a huge colossal book um and it's just so rich and dense and worth the read yeah, it's it's really hard to talk about the stand in terms of like initial plot points because there's so much going on. Yeah, you uh, can't. I I try not to talk about books and plot points like that, just specifically because you can't really get the idea across. That makes sense. Um, I do love the way that this. I do think the first half of this book is my favorite single portion of any Stephen King writing ever. Mm -hmm. As the pandemic is sort of spreading its way across the country and all the ways that it's affecting these little. Characters you'll never see again. Well, the way he tells you that. Yeah. You know, the, the notion of The Stand, um, along with, you know, uh, another book later on in his list, my favorite, but that'll do one of the things I really like about his writing style is where he will interject. It's not just straight, classic grammar, syntax, punctuation, and everything. He'll interject, you know, the italics for thought and different, like, um, just basically interjections of words and little mm -hmm. pieces and little chunks. And we'll give you a section, you can call it a chapter, call it whatever you want, where it's just a paragraph and a half. It tells you this little small part of the story that says so much about the larger part. The stand is where he does that better than almost any book, yeah. where it's like different little bits and pieces and sizes to paint this whole picture, as opposed to just this is the narrative line, follow the narrative line. Um, this is the basis for every post-apocalyptic thing I've ever been into for the rest of my life, whether it was Fallout or Mad Max sure. or... You know, like, even, like, any sort of video game that's... I just... I'm desperate for this world to be captured in a way that I could enjoy it. And this is... Of all the things that I am desperate for them to get a real good adaptation of, this is the one I've been waiting for my whole life. I'm, I'll be waiting forever. I don't think they can ever make... I don't think they'll ever make a good adaptation of this. I really don't. I think it has to be a novel. It has to be the long, extended version of the novel. Mm. That's the best version of it. I don't think you can make this in any other format. Mm. I really don't. I, it's too close to... It's hard to make something like this because you'd have to buy the IP. Why wouldn't you just make a novel about the end, of, a movie about the end of the world, and call it something different? Those type, well, that's a, that's a different argument. I right. Mean, whether right, somebody right. will invest the money to be made is different than saying it's not possible for it to be made. I just think it's hard. 
it's so big and so long. It had to be a TV series, yeah. or like a big TV yep. series. 10 to 12 episodes yeah. on HBO. Take what they just did for The Outsider and do it to the stand. Could you do three movies? One for each section of the book? There are. I think I think movies is a bad format. Movies bad format. Kind of, you, you don't want to chunk it up into... Mm-hmm. You could, theoretically, but we're... We're past that. We don't. It's yeah. not. It's not 2005 anymore. Like mm-hmm. we, nobody wants to watch content in three movies spread out over this long period of time yeah. without being able to watch in between. You know what I mean? Like it just it wouldn't. No, you would want to do a series. Yeah. You know what I mean? Let it just pop it out. Put out 10, 12 episodes, whatever it is. Do it on HBO. Um, give it a budget and just let it rip. They could absolutely do it with a good cast. Uh, really great. You, that's the other thing too. Great characters in this. Like so many characters. They're yeah, all so interesting yeah. and unique and. I think Randall Flagg, one of the first villains from this series that really resonated with me from all the Stephen King books. Like, I remember Randall Flagg specifically, this sort of embodiment of evil, and I just sort of hung cool. with me. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, that that Pennywise, I guess, that those are the characters that I think resonated with me the most in terms of the villains. Annie mm-hmm. Wilkes, Misery. Um, and then Larry Underwood, Baby Can You Dig Your Man, my first rock star idol in any book. I was oh. like, yeah, I just want to be Larry Underwood. <laughs> Um, Kev, do you want to do your... I guess... I I'll, just did my number three, so yeah. you got to do your number three. Well, I'll right? do my number two. My number three was Misery, so my number oh, two okay, was The yeah. Stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's do your number two. Well, here's the thing. Your number two and my number one are the same, so I guess let's talk about it together. Right. Uh, your number two and my number one is Pet Cemetery yes. from 1983. Yeah, yeah. Why do you have this one so high? Because it's awesome. Yeah. It's just... I mean, it's the best. Pet Cemetery is the leanest... It's the leanest, meanest application of Stephen King you will ever find in a book. It's not yeah. a super long book. It's devastating. It's dark. It's it scary. Is. It pulls no punches. Like mm-hmm. they're all the way down. You know what I mean? Like you want to you want to talk about like kids can be in danger. All this different stuff. The family story. It's just it's bleak. He doesn't pull any punches. It's got a killer ending. He sticks the ending. The all best the way ending. Down. I think he doesn't try to pull up. It's not a happy ending. Nope. Certainly. No, sir. Um, yeah, just the the leanest, meanest, best. I want to say in the in the version of the book that I have of this, the version I got, sure. he has the preface in the beginning, like the new preface where he talks about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is correct, and you guys can look yeah, at something no, if you want. I know what you're, yeah. He you're right. didn't publish this book for a long time. He felt yeah, like yeah. it was too far. He'd he's, gone yeah, too he far. He said he put the manuscript, he said after he wrote it, he's like, this is too much, this is too, hmm. it's too scary. Well, because the notion of, you know, I guess spoiler alert from Pet Cemetery, like people have seen the dumb movie they put out yeah. a bunch of years ago, or the dumb movie they put out last year, both suck, but, um... You know the the kid like the kid kid the kid dies. Kid gets run over. You know yeah. what I mean. So like the kid, the, the young baby, like the three year old yeah. kid dies in this book. Like as one yeah. of the cruxes of this pet cemetery, yeah. you can bury things and they come back to life. And this impetus for like getting real wild with it. And he was like, "No, nah, this is too much. I can't kill a kid in my book." Yeah. You know what I mean? Because like kids will be in danger, but like you can't directly just run down a child on the street. Because he said at the time he wrote it, he was living in like basically the house from the book. That's and they correct. had that highway, and he had young kids, and that's where this idea came from for him. He was a writer in residence at the University of Maine, and yeah, yeah. he was uh, renting uh, an apartment near a major road. And this happened to dogs and cats all the time. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, and that's I mean that's what the book you know that's what the book talks about, and he says that in that forward too. When he put it away for a long time, then you know, I guess like his wife or whatever encouraged him. But I'm glad he did. But he is right that this is the this is the bleakest. Oh. I don't know what the right word is. I don't want to say. I hate to say scary because like it's not scary, but it's the scariest book he's ever written. It's no, it's emotionally draining is not the right word, but it's it's a heavy toll to take emotionally. It's a lot about loss and what becomes important and and how and what you're willing to go through to get something back, even if it's not the same as when you lost it. 
it's uh. it's just it's it's heart wrenching. It, yeah. You feel so badly for the Lewis, the father of the. Yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's awesome. awesome. It's, it's a great book. Great it's book. such it's a good so book. So good. Uh, it it's no, it's but, such a bold decision too. All the choices he makes in this book, really. I, the I choices, it. yeah. Um, he and that's I think that you know there's something to be said about it being shorter. Yes. There's there's a lot to be said about it being shorter. You know what I mean? One of the reasons it comes up so high because the stand is a very long book. My number one is a very long book. Um, Pet Cemetery is nice that it's not that long. Like you can read it and it's not intimidating for people. You can give Pet Cemetery to somebody and they can chew right through it. You know what I mean? Just be prepared for an ending that is. Um, it's an ending. It's, it's the fine. best ending. We're not going to oversell it. It's great. Just read the book. Uh, I I think it's great. I I find it. I find it very upsetting how quickly you breeze past the 1989 film adaptation, which is not as good as the book, but it's pretty good. No, it sucks, though. No, I mean, it's all right. Yeah, it's, it's all right. Like, if, if you've read the book and you like the book and you like to, like, have fun with people being goofy idiots, yeah. then it's fine. But, like, it's not a good movie. You know it's not? It's not scary. Movie. It's got bad characters. It looks silly. Like, it's just, no. Not only is there a... And I just watched the new one, too, and it's not... Well, do you know what else there is? Not only is there a 1989 version of this movie... There is a 1992 film-only sequel called Pet Cemetery 2, which Stephen King has nothing to do with. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is very bad. Yeah, in, yeah. in a way that the 89 one is, like, light years better. <laughs> it's really poor. Sure. So you didn't like the new... I haven't watched the newest one. It's not good. It's it's not bad. Like, it's worth a watch. Mm-hmm. But you'll ju- if you've read the book and you like the book, you'll just be frustrated because they just made decisions that aren't even bad decisions. It's still a, like a good movie with an yeah. atmosphere, but it's just silly deviations for no real reason, and I don't get it. Have you ever heard the Ramones song "Pet Cemetery" they wrote no. for the movie? No, it's, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yeah, I don't want to be buried in the pet cemetery. It's really it sounds bad. It's really listen to it. out of place. Uh, so Pet Cemetery was my number one. It was your number two, which only leaves us with your number one left. What is your number one, Stephen King? Uh, the time? best book that Stephen King has ever written, um, undisputably. Uh, it. Mm-hmm. The book It. Yep. Is the best. <coughs> uh, full disclosure, this was on my list initially. I left it off because I knew you were putting it at number one. Right. I know it's your favorite Stephen King book, and I figured we'd talk about it anyway, which is why I left it off. Yes. This deserves to be in the top five. I wouldn't have talked about Desperation otherwise. <laughs> right. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so tell me what it is about this particular Stephen King book that makes it the one that stands above for you. Like, it was the first one that I read. Mm-hmm. I read it at such an early age. Um, I it, it, This is a really crazy book because the book goes back and forth between, you know, the children and the adults pretty yeah. famously. You know what I mean? These people's lives set at a different time. Mm-hmm. It was interesting because when I read it uh, the first time, I was the children's age. Yep. And so that was really cool, and I've read it since, now that I'm more the adult's age, and it's really rewarding that, too. Um, I can always come back to it. It's the scariest book I've ever read. Uh, it's so ambitious in the scope and the size, um, and I've never seen you know anything like it, and it's just uh, it's just the best, man. Uh, there's a really, really brief plot synopsis here. Uh, story follows the experience of seven children who are terrorized by an evil entity that exploits the fear of its victims uh, to disguise itself while hunting its prey. Uh, in the form primarily of Pennywise, the dancing clown. Uh, and the book goes through narratives alternating between two periods and told mostly from third-person, omniscient point of view. Uh, it's a really right. dense, large book. It's so spanning. It's probably 1,300 pages. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh-huh, really long. Sure. Um, it's a huge book. Big brick of a book. I think I was put off by this book because I remember I told you that story early on about my neighbor's parents having this book. 
So early on, this was the Stephen King book that sort of like hung over the rest of them. Right. Right. That other one, I was like, I'll get to that one eventually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What's the needful things? I'll read this first. (laughs) I'll get to it later. Mm. Uh, Yeah, it is awesome. Yeah. It gets into the cosmic horror stuff better than any of his other books that touch upon cosmic horror or overwhelming cosmic entities that are larger than humanity, right? The idea that this entity existed long before humans, right? right? Yeah, this evil. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I love that. I just, I, I really love... The conceit come... The conceit of going from these kids, uh, when they're kids, to when they come back as adults and the way that he goes back and forth is masterful and the stories in between that sew it together and Mm -hmm. uh i mean just you know just to even try to bite something like that off to do would be impressive itself but it's so seamless and it's so perfect the way the two bounce back and forth between one another and it's really it's as close to a perfect book of his it's it's magnum opus that's why the term exists you know what he's really good at he's shockingly good at like coming of age stuff and, like, having that sort of coming-of-age story inside of the horror story is a really, really, like, wonderful use of his talents. Yeah. And it's, you know, and I think it is so, it's become so popular now because of the movies and because, of like, the 90s movie that people, you know, remember. Uh, this might be his, the work that people most recognize him for now, do you think? Um, I think this is the one people immediately go to when they say, oh, Stephen King, it, right, the clown? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, I found this book... Yeah, to be, I think the criticisms against that are lobbied against this book tend to be overblown. Yeah. Right? Uh, I think most historically there's the the sex scene that happens. Sure. Um, but I will say, like, even as a kid reading that, I was like, however old I was, 14, 15, whatever it was when I read this book, I was like in the age where, like, sex was not something I might have necessarily been having, but it was a concept in my mind as a kid of that age. Sure. It's not outrageous that, like, these kids had some level of like it's uh, just over i mean it's over it's literally it's like three quarters of a page yeah so that whole that 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 angle's overblown but like that's i mean even reading it as a kid i didn't feel like i was reading anything i just i moved right past it in the next part because it's it's different it's a different book when you read it as a kid that's like that's it's truly a different book when you read it as a kid than you read it as an adult it's just that's like that's become i get it that like that's a that's like a hot button thing that like people really like sort of like focus on, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like really, really tend to like focus in on and fixate on. Um, I, that's not even like the ending really. Mm-hmm. It's like a thing that happens and it's a really weird choice and you know, you might not like, like it or be into it or it might be strange. Like these kids yeah. are doing this, but I think it's, that's a, if that's your first criticism, you throws the book at a hole. I think it's a weird mm. take. Well, I just feel like it's a thing that people feel like they need to people bring do. up all the time. People do. I think it's a time. weird take. Yeah. People do feel they need to bring yeah. up all the time. I think that's a weird um, take. And I just mean, like, when I read it as a kid, it was not something that stuck with my memory. Like, the things that stuck in my mind from that book were, like, the Paul Bunyan statue and, like, these Although, yeah, all the, horrifying, like, scenarios. The other 1,317 yeah. pages. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just a really, really... It is... I think you're right. Like, it hits almost everything he's good at. The cosmic horror, the smaller insular horror that you feel like on an individual level, the coming of age stuff, the, like looking back as an adult and like wishing for something that you can't have anymore as an adult, like the nostalgia he has for those like the kids, just it's perfect the way that he concocts everything that he's good at and, yeah. and to a razor's edge. It's really really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, did you like the new adaptations of this one? I have I one just, of them. I listed. just saw the first half. I didn't see the second half. I heard it's disappointing, so I don't want to be disappointed. Um, I saw the first half. I thought it was very good. It was better than the miniseries. I don't think the miniseries is very good. Um, besides, like, <laughs> like rose-colored nostalgia garbage. Nah, like, it's all right. 
It's not very good. The though, first like... no, the first half is still pretty good. The second half with the adults is not good. No, for the miniseries. Yeah, the yeah. first part with the kids, I find it's still, all right. Yeah, I find that pretty pretty it's good. It's all right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, compared to the book, like it's just not. You know what I mean? It's it's nowhere near. It's sure it doesn't even come close. I don't expect that for almost any movie, though. I'm bring, not saying yeah. to be as good. That's not what I mean. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, like, in even telling the story. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, until you're throwing away so much of the story and the narrative and all the other stuff, like, just to make it small for that. But, yeah, no, I don't know. I didn't watch it. The all right. One. So, there we go. We had uh, Pet Summit here, number one for me. It, number one for Kevin. You can start with any of these novels if you've never read any Stephen King, and you'll be pretty happy with anything you read here, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, it... It and The Stand are always really intimidating books yes. uh, just because of their size. Like, you know, mm. these are the two above 1,000 page. 72263 is pretty long, too. But, um, yeah. but these are the two, like, you know, where he gets the reputations writing these long books. And I can see where they would be daunting, like, especially maybe if you don't like, read as much. Like, you look at a book like that, you're like, ah, oh, Jesus, that's a lot of to bite it off. Neither of them feel like mm. they're that long when you're in them. And when you're finished, you're glad you had so much of it, if that makes sense. Well, very good. Um, shall we do our short stories as well? This probably won't take quite as long as the as the novel section. I wonder. You think so? <laughs> it might take longer. Uh, all right. So, well, uh, did I start the last one? Do you want to start this one? Do you remember five? Uh, yeah. yeah, I didn't put these too much in order. Well, that's okay. Um, so let me give a minute and see what I think is number five here. Why don't you go ahead? All right. Well, I'll start with one. Uh, and this is from the 1982 Stephen uh, King novella, Different Seasons, which is a really great novella if you think about all the stuff that's in it. I could have taken any story out of this. Well, they're all really good. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. Like, yeah. the consistency there is uh, almost more consistent than novels at this point. Uh, different season of the four stories that are in that novel, three of them have been adapted to very good to well-received movies, and then one of them, the last one, The Breathing Method, is coming out next year, so mm-hmm. they are adapting the fourth one. Uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, number five. Uh, that's my story. It is uh, adapted in 1994 for the Shawshank Redemption screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is just a good example of kicking against the idea that Stephen King is only a horror author. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, he... This is there's nothing, there's nothing scary about this story. It is a story about a guy in jail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it's just... It just really highlights how powerful uh, he is when it comes to character building and making you feel like these characters are real people and you mm. feel their emotions and you feel uh, their like sadness and their strength and you see what they're going through in a way that I don't even see with real people when I see them sometimes. Just sure. So fleshed out. Um, and again, great movie. Uh, I love the adaptation work. I love the subtle joke in the movie that they have with uh, Morgan Freeman when they ask him why they call him Red and he's like, it's because I'm Irish. Mm-hmm. Because in the novel he's an Irish guy. Or in the story he's an Irish guy. I always thought that was clever. Uh, yeah, just a really good example of uh, Stephen King sort of forcibly being thrown into that horror corner sometimes when he doesn't deserve it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I never read it. Mm. Uh, just cause it's just, good. I've seen The Shawshank Redemption so many times yeah. that like it's just... I would read it, but I don't think I've had different seasons. I've never really picked it up. I probably will at some time, but it's mm-hmm. always... Been backburnered because of what it is for me, but I'm sure it's excellent. You know what I mean? Great. Um, I would say for my number five, I'm going to go with um, a story from the 2015 collection mm-hmm. called Bizarre of Bad Dreams. Um, the story is called Under the Weather. Mm. Um, Under the Weather is an excellent story. Uh, without giving too much of it away, Under the Weather is about um, there's this guy, and like imagine if something like something horrible's happened, and you you're sort of blocking it out, yeah, and like you're kind of you're feeling really like you know sort of hazy you don't know what's going on you're just sort of like Mm -hmm. delusional but there's this impending horror something 
you're not remembering something you can't quite remember you can't quite mm. think of is quite slipping your mind with this like impending dread that keeps getting bigger um it's an excellent story but that's kind of the, that's the most i can say without giving mm. away the real crux even though when you're reading it you might figure out what's going on halfway through because <laughs> yeah. you know it's they want you to know as it goes on but it would be nice to start afresh um and most of these short stories you can probably find for free on the internet oh, a yeah. lot of them but yeah under the weather i thought it was a great 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 story uh, I'll go with number four, and I guess this is kind of cheating. It is the longest entry in a short story book. It's The Mist from 1980. Yeah, that's that's complete cheating. Total cheating. It is... It, Cheater. Okay. So, <laughs> it is... Uh, it's 134 pages long. It is the yeah. longest story in the book Skeleton Crew, uh, which is also full of short stories. The Skeleton Crew are probably my favorite of the short story collections. Probably my second favorite. Either that or Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Yeah. yeah. All three of my next ones are off... Uh, one particular short story thing, so I'll get into that in a second. But The Mist is something that I feel like I'm jealous I didn't write. I love the idea of the story. It's, you know, for folks who've never seen the movie, it uh, it's about a small town in Maine that is suddenly enveloped in an unnatural mist that conceals otherworldly monsters. Yeah, yeah. We've talked a lot about H.P. Lovecraft. I have, at least. This is You do very... keep saying Lovecraftian. That's well, for sure. Look, I don't love everything that H.P. Lovecraft ever wrote, but I think if you're looking... You can see the threads of where Stephen King's like interest in cosmic horror comes from. Sure. It, it, there's a lot of Lovecraftian references that he throws, and I think the mist, especially the way he describes the creatures in the mist and the sort mm-hmm. of alternate dimension and these sort of amorphous creatures that Trying are to beyond the unexplainable. Yeah, that's a very Lovecrafty feature, and this sure. story in particular feels very much like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just a really, really cool story. I love the... It's so caught up inside this little grocery store, and it's about the characters inside, and not just what's outside, but the way it changes the, the people inside and how they react to it, yeah, yeah. and what it means about the world outside. This is a story that was ripe for adaptation. I love the movie adaptation of this. I'll talk about that in the next thing, but this sure. is just a really awesome story. This was, I think, released as a standalone book years later. You can yeah, go buy yeah, like this is all over. Yeah, yeah. this is all from Barnes and Noble. Oh uh, yeah, but um, the mist. Yeah, four. no, I think I think you I think you were sort of hitting on it. I think the crux of this book what makes it interesting is because like when this mist comes and you've got people trapped in like a location that sort of goes to show what happens and like all these people are out there and trapped and like how quickly we revert to tribalism and fear and like anger and all this different kind of stuff and I think that's a really cool, um, really cool aspect of that. As so relevant I'm, now as ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, I mean, you know, universal timeless themes, for sure. There's, just like we say, the reason these books from the 70s stick. There's no yeah. reason that one doesn't, too. Oh, for sure. Number three for you? Uh, number three. You want my number four? Four my number three? Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. Um, number four is from the book Skeleton Crew. It's a story called The Raft. Mm. You know The Raft? I do know The Raft. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, the story of The Raft, it's a bunch of, uh, like, teens who are out there, like, <laughs> fucking around up at the lake on the weekend. Yeah. And they all jump out and swim out to this raft in the middle oh, of the yeah, lake. And it's like there's like the bully, like jock guy teen, like his little nerdy pal, like the two girls who just want the guy. And it's all these younger people and they're out on this raft. They go to swim back, but there's this like monster out there and they can't leave the raft. That's right. It's basically watching them. Something comes up in the water without like spoiling it and they can't get off the raft and go back to shore. But they're stuck out there. It's October. There's nobody near the lake because it's the end of season. Mm -hmm. They drove up on a whim and it's about how it plays out when they get trapped out there. And it's a really cool story. Um, And... It was one that I read really early when I was reading the short stories, back at a time when I was much, much more invested in, like, a high school-style story, you know what I mean? The fact that these were, like, teens and, like, kids and stuff like that, I really related with when I read it, so it sticks with me. But I think it's a cool idea of just, like, a nice little small 
story. You know what I mean? Just a nice small helping yeah. of what Stephen King does. You know what I mean? Building a large yeah. world quickly in a small way and just telling a tiny tale. Uh, the Raft itself was adapted into film as a segment of the 1987 horror movie Creepshow 2. So if that sounds familiar to you, that might be why you know it. Because they mostly adapted it pretty faithfully. But I never saw it. I didn't know they did that. Yeah, yeah. Creepshow 2. Not a great not a great. I, it's funny because I like Stephen King so much, I stray away from adaptations. Like, I don't seek them out for any reason. Uh, it depends. Depends well, yeah, what it is, I think, yeah. yeah. Uh... All right, so I'll go to my number three, uh, and this is a classic that's been uh, adapted a couple times. That's uh, Children of the Corn, Mm. Uh, first published in March 1977 in an issue of Penthouse, and then later collected in the uh, Night Shift, which all three of my uh, remaining stories will be from. Night Shift, probably my favorite of the short story books. Mind you, there's so many Stephen King short story books, including one that's coming out today when you guys hear this. Yeah, yeah, 21st. Yeah, 21st. So it's called It Bleeds. That'll be out tomorrow. If you get hyped up, you want to go buy the new Stephen King book, let them know that uh, we got you excited for it. Uh, Children of the Corn, uh, it's a really short story. It's not very long at all, and it's about these two... uh, They somehow extrapolated like four dumb movies from it, which is what people know when they hear it, but... Uh, it's about a couple's exploration of a strange town and their encounters of the denizens after their vacation is sidelined by a car accident. That's the easiest way to describe it. Mm-hmm. There's a cult of children. There's something that lives behind the corn. What's interesting about the adaptation uh, that they didn't do... Or they didn't do in the adaptation they did in the book. In the book, the the two characters, the mean characters who are driving together, Bert and Vicky are their names, they're a couple, but they hate each other. And there's this sort of like anger and vitriol where they're like they're obviously on the verge of like falling apart before this whole thing ever happens and then when things break down then all of a sudden you see their actions change they have to sort of come together it's really interesting narrative and they went way past they, they totally skipped it in the movie they just everyone's like oh we're in a you couple you can't write a movie yeah well, because it's such a short story you, you can't have right. the people breaking apart and just dying yeah that's true so much of a movie it's 20 minutes yeah it's it a is a snuff film it is bleak, uh, but I, I like this short story again. I like the world that he built, this abandoned town where the adults are gone and the kids have found this religion and they've been there for a long time and everyone who comes through the town is subject to what could happen to them. It's just a really, really clever idea and really well-crafted. And I actually really like the conflicting couple as a story arc going into it. it like It sets your expectations for something that's not coming and it changes once the real antagonist shows up it's a really clever little minor twist that i like in the story mm. yeah so children of the corn from 1977 pretty great kev what's your number three short story uh my number three is from 1993's number in dreamscapes uh it's home delivery home delivery yeah home i don't del- know if i know this one home delivery is sick um <laughs> home delivery is a story uh it's a zombie story Ooh, a zombie story and home mm. delivery these people live out on like an island somewhere like a new england style island um and this star comes back like around so the star mm. called wormwood that makes the bodies rise from the ground and all this stuff happens and it's just about like this thing sort of rising up and just like you're talking about how stephen king does really interesting takes on certain like broad tropes like vampires like yeah. this or that it's one of the times he's really gotten after like zombies directly mm. outside of i mean you make an argument for pet cemetery but like a more sure. traditional zombie kind of thing um and it was another one that i just i read so mm. young nightmares and dreamscapes is the first short story book i got and so this is just one of my favorite ones from that book. So it sticks out with me, and it sticks out now so many years later as being so different from what he uh, what he had going on as well, and other things that he's done. Well, this one is also adapted twice. Two thousand five is an animated short produced by Guillermo del Toro, uh, and then as 
a book called The Secretary of Dreams, which is a collection of comic books based on King's short fiction, which is kind of cool. I've never heard of that. Uh, all right. I'll go to number two here. Uh, and this is a short story from 1975. It was first published in a magazine called Cavalier, but later collected in the book Night Shift. It is called The Boogeyman. Uh, Boogeyman is essentially a story of a man in a psychiatrist's office talking about a creature that's been... Uh, attacking his child and his mm -hmm. inability to help his child and mm -hmm. the fear that's overwhelming him. The boogie, it's the boogeyman. You know it what is the boogeyman a, is. Yeah, yeah. It's a great story. Um, I won't spoil the ending if you've never heard of it because the ending is sort of the big catch. Uh, this is just, I feel like this is one that stuck with me after I read it. Like I felt uncomfortable after yeah. reading it. I was in like a bus driving to Washington, D.C. and I read this and I was just like, I was oh. in bad as a kid. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just so, it's, it's almost on the nose, actually, when you start reading it. Like, as, as I'm reading through the story, I can almost tell what's going to happen, but that doesn't make it any less dreadful and disconcerting for uh -huh. me. Right? Like, it's it's a really well-done story. It's, again, nice that it's nice and short. Doesn't You don't linger too long on it, but uh -huh. it leaves something with you. Um, this has been adapted a couple times as well. Um, they're still working on a major movie version of it, which is supposed to be coming out in, like, the 2020s area sometime soon. But weird, weird call. Who weird knows? No reason for it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this one, though, what's interesting about The Boogeyman is I think this is a Stephen King story I had read before I read it, like, in that book. Like, I had heard about it before. I had seen people talking about it. I think you would talk to me about this as one of the original, like, Stephen King's Dollar Babies stories that he would allow people to adapt for really cheap. I don't know about it from that angle, but it was definitely a story that I would have talked about. Because the only reason this isn't on my list is because I knew you were going to talk about it. So yeah. I figured there's so many. I had to make so many cuts from my list anyway to get it to five. Yeah. Honestly, that I just sort of skipped it. But this is probably my favorite. Um, mm. It's the, one of the scariest things I've ever read from him. Like, when I remember reading yeah. it, like, you know, my old bedroom when I was a kid, like, in in the book, in, in Night Shift, or Graveyard Shift, whatever. And it was... Um, it was just horrifying. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's such an it's such a simple idea. Like everybody knows mm -hmm. the boogeyman that lives in the closet that lives under the bed and he really just like puts the pedal to the metal on it in a short story. And yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know, it was it was great. I thought it was really good. Yeah. Really, really a standout story. Um it's very it has a creeping dreadfulness to it that is really hard to define. Like I just as I could feel it as I was reading through the story, like sort of climbing through my well, chest. You can, you can do that in the short story form better yeah. because you don't you don't have to sustain it for 500, 600 pages. Um, all right, I'll go to my number one then. Uh, and this one is probably not his best work, but again, this one stuck with me for a long time. This is from 19... That was your number one? That was my number two. Boogeyman, it's my number two. I had... Uh, so do you want my number two? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, one? go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm, not, I'm ahead. sorry. I'm just out of order. I'm yeah, yeah. You're number two. My bad. Uh, no, yeah. My number two is uh, from the book Full Dark, No Stars mm -hmm. from 2010. It's a novella uh, called A Good Marriage. Oh. Um, they made a movie. Yeah. They made a movie. Don't watch it. Don't, um, <laughs> Don't watch it. <laughs> it's just, again, it's just a, it's a watered down, like, milquetoast version of like, what makes sure. the story cool. Sure. Uh, what's cool about that, there's absolutely no supernatural in it. I don't mm -hmm. think there is in any of the... Full Dark, Full Dark No Stars is a, is a collection of four novellas, and it's awesome. Yeah. It came out in 2010. All four of them are really good. I think they've made movies out of all of them, uh, including 1922, was in Full Dark No Stars as well, mm -hmm. which you see on Netflix. Um, but yeah, Good Marriage is about um, this couple that's married um, and discovering uh, secrets about one another. <laughs> Deep, dark, long-held secrets. But it's completely, completely rooted in reality. There's no supernatural. There's no mm -hmm. anything um much more towards if you're into like uh, like serial killers that kind of stuff mm. you'd be into it. Mm. Uh, I thought it was really good. It kind of, I wasn't expecting it. I just sort of got the book on a whim. I think I had to take a plane somewhere. I'm like, oh, I'll get this. You know what I mean? I'll just read yeah. these two novellas on the plane. 
and I was riveted, and it was really, really cool. I wasn't expecting it. I thought the ending was great, um, but the movie was a little bit disappointing. Yeah. It was fine. It just kind of felt like a Lifetime movie. It felt like a TV movie. You know what I mean? It didn't come out in theaters. It was like direct-to-DVD. Uh, don't watch it if you haven't read the story, because the story's not that long, and it's definitely worth the read. Uh, all right. I'll go to number one. This is probably the reason that I started doing this idea for the show in the first place, because this, st- this story's been stuck in my head for like three weeks now. I don't know why. Uh, it is a story from 1970. It was initially uh, published in Cavalier Magazine and then later collected to Night Shift. It is called Graveyard Shift. I guess it's not the title story of the book. Sort of. Sure it is. Right, Night Shift. It's got yeah. the same name as the title. Well, Graveyard Night Shift, Shift. Night Great Shift. Shift. Yeah, it's close, close enough. Uh, Graveyard, <laughs> Graveyard uh, Shift is set in a small town in Maine uh, where a young drifter named Hall has been working at a decrepit textile mill in a small town and the cruel foreman, Warwick, recruits him and others to assist with a massive cleaning effort in the basement of the mill that's been abandoned for decades, where a monumental infestation of rats has taken hold. Um, while the story is really cool in this sort of adventure into this underworld of this mill uh, that's been abandoned, and these rats have sort of built a life for themselves, being stuck down there for so long, and they've and there is this sort of aspect of them evolving into their own sort of ecosystem, like these different types of rats, and they're blind because they're in the dark, and blah, blah, blah. But also the part of the book that hangs with me is the cruelty and the interactions between the boss character and the subservient characters, the worker characters. Mm-hmm. It's a re- He's really, the Warwick character is more of a monster in the story than the actual rats or mice. Well, it's really, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, it's a, it's a meditation on it, a metaphor for having a shitty graveyard shift dead end yeah. awful rot job you're treated like garbage you mm-hmm. deal with garbage you do garbage everything is awful and horrible and oppressive mm-hmm. and it's really really sort of a metaphor for that kind of experience and yeah. meditation on what it can feel like to get you know mm-hmm. really just shoved down into the dirt like that this book gave me uh made the next sudden hair uh, hairs in the back of my next day end up reading it like it i just love the way it built up and Nothing about it makes you feel like it's going to end well, and spoiler alert, it does not, but it, it's a smart ending, and it's, and just the way that it builds up and sort of the shift of power between the, the boss and the employee, and as they get farther down into the mill, that shift of power turns around. Uh, it's really satisfying, but man, he just it's a really, really great short story, and I think it sort of encompasses everything I wanted in that Stephen King thing. It's supernatural a little bit but it's more a meditation on that character interaction and those people and these human feelings and what it does. Right. Yeah. So that's my number one, Graveyard Shift from 1970. Mm, there you go. Um, my number one uh, probably would have been The Boogeyman, like mm-hmm. I had said, uh, but I will go with my number one will be the number one that you see on every list of Stephen King short stories ever. Anybody ever putting together a list of the top Stephen King short stories, I'm going to jump in with all those folks because they're not wrong. Uh, the Jaunt. The Jaunt, yep. The Jaunt is probably the most famous, uh, not most famous because they made movies out of some of the novellas, but like The Jaunt is known as probably his best um, short story. It's a science fiction tale um, about basically uh, further down in society, we, we develop this ability to teleport so like instead of yeah. going to the airport you go to the jaunt where your like little shuttle thing goes through this portal and boom you'll be in chicago instantly but they got to put you to sleep for it mm. and how they develop this and where it comes from and they develop the technology to be able to do this and the way it plays off and it's a really interesting storytelling conceit because the whole story is told as this family is about to take a jaunt to wherever mm-hmm. they call it jaunting so you're going to take a jaunt oh, i'm going to take a jaunt to chicago right if you're going to teleport chicago and so this dad is at the airport with the mom and the two little kids and his son is asking him all these questions about jaunting and he's telling them the story like that, like that until the end of the story where they get ready to go on theirs and the book reaches its climax, you know what I mean? But it's just, 
it's one of the best science fiction stories I've ever read in my life. And it's amazing. And for a guy who, it's definitely horrifying and, like, you know, dark and macabre and all those things. But, like, it's straight up science fiction. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's really um, just an excellent story. When you gave me uh, Skeleton Crew to read, you highlighted a bunch of stories. I think this was the first thing you told me to read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, you're like, go read this right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, that last, those last couple lines, that yeah. very ending is yeah. just, much like all of his best short stories, unlike the long novels, the very endings, like the, the last yeah. 10%, everything's like, oh, wait, shit's hitting the fan, yeah. everything's going down. That's a really good point, actually. The short stories sort of counteract all the bad ending takes you get from the novels, because the short stories don't need to have these big endings that you get, you unexpect when you get to, like, the end of It, or The Stand, where it's building to something. Well, no, but, I think the endings, the endings are always are good, though. And a lot of short stories. Yeah, that's what I mean. Excellent. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like, you're not... With it, you get so excited for the journey and everything that's going on and on. And like, no matter what you get to at the end, it's hard to build something that feels like it's going to be satisfactory to how you got there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. With the stories, because they're shorter and quicker, you can have just like a stinger ending. Like, ooh, gotcha. Yeah, right? Because yeah. you don't have to... You're not quite as invested. Well, that was one yeah. of the reasons I got into his short story books when I was younger, I think, is because like yeah. when... It was you go to a bookstore, like you said, you go to the grocery store, you go wherever you go. Your parents like, okay, you can get one book, right? Mm-hmm. Remember, like, okay, mm-hmm. you can get one book. One. And I was getting into Stephen King and stuff like that. And so the short story books, stuff like Skeleton Crew, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, you know, Night mm-hmm. Shift, all that, were bang for your buck. Mm-hmm. It was what it really was. I'm like, I can get this and I can get 20 good stories. I'll get a bunch of reading out of this, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it really comes down is he's somebody who, well known for his longer format, is maybe even better in short form. Yeah, I think for a long time I wanted to do... I was so invested in getting through all the big classic ones that I, I always put the short stories off to the side initially early on. And then it was a nice little thing to come back to. The short story books are always useful and they become even yeah. more useful as I get older because yeah. they were always useful for when I didn't have time to dig into, you know, mm-hmm. 900 pages of Under the Dome or whatever yeah. it might be. You know what I mean? It was nice. I'm like, oh, I can read these oh, short I stories. Put Under the Dome on my list. That's a shame. No, it wasn't on the list. It was all right. Did you Pretty read that? Good. I read part of it. It was fine. Yeah, it was good. It's big. It was fine. It's big. It's yeah. Very long. Bigger than it needed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Probably uh, could have been a cool short story. Yes. Or a novella, actually. <laughs> uh, well, we got through our list of books and short stories. Yeah. And novellas, I guess, because I put the list in there. Um, so I guess we're not done, though. Uh, we'll come back and just do a quick run-up, because I have a couple adaptation things. Okay. I came up with a list of some of my least favorite Stephen King stuff. Mm. Uh, and I've talked about a couple different adaptation things we can just discuss and some ideas about what we want to see Stephen King do going forward. So we'll be back in just a moment. I'm familiar with all of them, but I got no kind of list or anything like that for this. Well, uh, I just came up with a couple different... Here's my five, and I'll give you an honorable mention. My honorable mention was Pet Cemetery. So I <laughs> talked about that earlier. I think Pet Cemetery is a good movie. It's not a great movie. It's a good movie. It's a... Fred Gwynn's excellent in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy who plays Lewis is pretty good. It's... It doesn't shy too far away from everything. It's, mm-hmm. it's not bad. 
And for a time, that was one of the first Stephen King movies I was like had seen. Mm. Like uh, I guess Misery sort of. We'll get to that in a second. But I don't think Pet Cemetery is as bad as you're as you're giving it credit for. It's not very good. Uh, number five for me was actually It Chapter One. Yeah, It Chapter One was nice. They did a nice job. I wish there was more of it, and yeah. I wish they had leaned in a little bit further, but... Well, one of the things we had talked about yesterday is it feels like even when they do make a Stephen King adaptation, it's never, like, the biggest budget adaptation. It's never, like, uh, an A-plus director and an A-plus actor doing it. It's always, like... Here's... It was nice to see It with a pretty a pretty yeah. rich world. You know yeah. what I mean? For such a rich, dense, you know, a decadent huh. book. It's a decadent yeah. book, really. It's a hard um... book to, to adapt, well, it's an expensive book to adapt. Yes, I don't. Th- I think hard. We say hard a lot here. It's it's a misnomer. It's expensive to do. Yes, you know what I mean. There's a high bar for it. Yeah, but it's fair. not like yeah. it's oh, we just can't figure out what we would need to do. We know what we need to do. We just got to get the money together yeah. and execute it. Mm. Uh, but I thought that it was a really ambitious job. I thought they they weren't. You know, it wasn't as scary as you'd like it to be. I guess necessarily, but I thought it was a really well. It was a good job of crafting a universe. And if you're making a Stephen King, it's the best you're gonna do yeah. with a movie. Yeah. Yeah, you, it's, it's it's pretty good for a movie. I didn't walk out of there disappointed, so I'll take that as a big win for yeah. that movie, and I think that's a good start. Uh, number four is the Frank Darabont version of The Mist. Yeah, um, watch it in the black and white. Yeah, it's really cool in the black and white. Seems like an old movie. Um, it's really good. One of those interesting things where they changed the ending of this novel, or from the novel, or from the, the novella, I don't know if it's better or worse, but it's definitely a... A more definitive ending mm-hmm. in the in the movie. Yeah, I, I can't. I've still gone back and forth about whether I think it's the right choice. Mm. I I think in hindsight maybe it was to go mm. with the bleaker ending. We'll say sure. Uh, but I thought they did a really nice job with that movie. Like it's it's one of the more spot on adaptations. When they like. when they said they were going to make it, I thought it was going to be preposterous. I'm mm. like, this is so stupid. And yeah. then they made it. I'm like, oh, this is pretty good. Yeah, it's that pretty movie, good. It's it's definitely it's a good watch. Can I say it's a little bit. Like you're watching a play, and yeah, it almost sure. could. Be, and actually, the mist almost could be a play. Well, because once they get to the setting where they're all misted in together, which I'm not really a spoiler to say is the grocery store. Yeah, yeah. Um, once they get to that point, yeah, it just becomes kind of about like small setting. I wonder if you could do that as a stage play. Like, I wonder if you could just have people like in the store for the first couple minutes, and then have somebody like you hear the steps walk and someone yelling like, "Don't go into the mist." Or whatever, have someone come in and do the whole paranoia story. Yeah, you do. I don't think it'd be very good. You could probably do it though. I don't know. <laughs> get uh, get right then. I don't know. Who's a? I wish I can't think of the woman's name in the movie, but she's a gr- a terrible person, but a great actress. She's yeah. great. It's like Marisha Gay Harden. She's very hateable in that movie. Good. It's a good adaptation. Uh, number three, I have Misery. Uh, I flipped Misery in the Mist because I can't objectively say that The Mist is a better movie than yeah, Misery. It's not. it's not. Maybe the best Kathy Bates performance I've ever seen. She's amazing mm. in that movie. Um, I like James Caan a lot in that movie. Really good casting. Really well made. Who is that? Rob Reiner, I think. It's a Rob Reiner movie from 1990. Um, sort of the first time that I think a Stephen King adaptation, he lo- he seemed to like it and it got credibility and it was like super popular and really mm-hmm. successful. Um Weirdly, I think the movie has almost overshadowed the book now. Like, the movie is the more definitive version of Misery, I think, yeah, I for most people. So. I would say so. Uh, number two is Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank, which, of course, yeah. Shawshank number two. Um, it's amazing. It's an amazing movie. Uh, it's a better movie than it is a short story. I mean, it's very rare. Again, Frank Darabont. Again, I think the Dar- Frank Darabont-Stephen uh, King connection is actually quite good. They do a nice job. Sort of, he does a good job adapting King's work. Sure. 
But that's a bigger movie and a better movie than it is a short story. It's just an idea. You know, it comes from that idea. And I mean, number one's The Shining. It's the best movie that's ever been made out of a Stephen King property. Now, if you want to sit here and say that it's not faithful to the book, it's not. But it is the best movie that's ever been made based on a Stephen King property. As a, as a standalone film. It's an amazing piece of art. It's beautifully shot. It's well acted. It's beautifully directed. It's amazing. So I, I don't buy the take that it's not like the best thing that's ever been adapted. So there you I'm go. not saying a word to you about it. I'm uh yeah, it's uh Shining's excellent. And I do think that I I've struggled with the idea that like the miniseries, which we've talked about in the past, the, uh-huh. the it is close. It's way closer to the book. It's a much closer adaptation. I just don't think it's good. It's just un- I can't enjoy it. It feels cheap. Feels like you're watching it on the Hallmark Channel. Yeah, it feels like Pet Cemetery. It feels like the It miniseries. Yes, yeah, it does. That's what it feels like. And for some reason, it doesn't. St- the It miniseries, when I look back on it, I don't watch it as like a child in your grandparents' living room, so you don't yeah. have like that warm, fuzzy, yeah. rose-colored nostalgia shit. Yeah. For it, that's all. I just think that the. I, I think you have to look at the Shining movie, the Kubrick, the Stanley Kubrick version, as not really like a direct adaptation. Of the Stephen King book. Yeah, I don't think anybody would argue with that. Uh, but I still think that, despite that, it's amazing. Of course. It's stunning. stunning. Yeah. And I actually do think the one adaptation that he made, I like the I like the hedge maze better than the hedge animals. I don't know if that's a hot take for Stephen King Shining fans. I thought the hedge maze was a more visual, visceral thing than like the hedge animals coming to life. For his movie, the animals were better in the book than the maze would have been. Yeah. Right. Right, right, right. correct. Yeah. For, yeah. To make his movie, though, yeah. A uh, couple other adaptations I put in here. Didn't really didn't see the new Doctor Sleep adaptation. Uh, we've not talked about Cujo at all, not even once. Yeah. Even though it's quite a good book and a pretty good movie. Cujo's, yeah, Cujo's a great book. Cujo is on my short list to make the top five. Cujo is like a another book that you can sort of you could read it without any supernatural leaning to it. It doesn't sure. doesn't they sort of leave it up for interpretation uh, to your own interpretation, I guess about what happens to Cujo and why he goes crazy. Um, but I think that book's also like a really nice, short, insular, quick story. The movie's pretty good. What are your thoughts on The Green Mile? I didn't talk about The Green Mile. Green Mile's great. It was a great read. It's a great movie. Didn't read the books. Didn't love, love the movie. Yeah, it's not to love. Yeah. It's not to love. That's a movie to watch with your parents. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's mm. not like a movie. It's not... Spo- not every movie is going to be like, this movie changed my life, man. This is capital F-I-L-M filmmaking. Like, mm-hmm. Not every movie is going to be that. Some movies are just like, it's a nice movie to catch on TV. You watch a movie with your parents. It's casual. It's like, you know, later on, like Thanksgiving or like Christmas. It's a nice crowd pleaser there for everybody. I just, they did a nice and faithful job with that story. I guess I didn't, I, maybe because I didn't read the books. It just, I don't, it didn't linger with me after I watched it. I was like, okay. Yeah. I watched it and I was like, "This was fine," and it's, then I never thought about it's it. It's like a it's like a spiritual successor and cousin to Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, same kind of thing. The yeah. only difference is you haven't seen it as billions of times. I mean, Shawshank is better. There's no question. Sure, but like the it's still it's the same kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there have been a few TV miniseries ones. Obviously, the Stand miniseries is a really tough watch. Honestly, I would rather watch the It miniseries than almost any of the other miniseries that have been based on Stephen King works. Yeah, um, the Desperation one's a real big disappointment. Uh, Needful Things was a TV series, yeah. briefly, I think. Uh, and then, I haven't watched Castle Rock. We've talked briefly about, I might dig into an episode of that, see what's up with it. People Castle, said it's gotten better. Castle Rock's an interesting thing. Um, yeah. Uh, there it's is, not really an adaptation. 
So, like, what is he? Just taking characters from the or ideas? Yeah, kind of. Castle Rock is like they they're in this world. They're in Castle Rock. They'll take right ideas and characters from his stories, but mm-hmm. kind of tell their own stories and add other characters as well. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. you'll have like Sheriff Alan Pangborn from like Needful Things and from these different places mm-hmm. is for sure a guy who's right out there and a guy living right. a life. And there will be things that refer to different stuff from the books. But it's sort of like in the neighborhood without directly mm. being any of them. But uh, from what I've seen with the season two uh, alone for Lizzie Kaplan as Annie Wilkes from Misery, yeah. um, it's different because they don't touch on the book Misery. It's all her when she's much, much younger than sure. Kathy Bates is. Mm. But she's up there, uh, from what I've seen, absolute toe-to-toe with Kathy Bates. And I understand what a tall thing that is to say, and I'm saying it. Uh there is a comic book adaptation of The Stand, which I think deserves just a quick mention. Marvel Comics did a full multi-comic adaptation of The Stand, and I think it's actually one of the better like adaptations. It's really, really close to the to the novel, and it's a pretty good app. It's just a pretty good way to do it. I don't know if I would want to read every Stephen King book in comic book form, but it's a really like a well done attempt. Like they really really leaned into it. Huh. Yeah. And you can tell that like they like the story. I think that's important too when you're adapting. You got to have somebody who really wants to make this material because it means something to them. And you could tell that like they whoever was into this, whoever wrote it, whoever did the, they really liked this story. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Uh, there are no video game adaptations of yeah, Stephen that's... King's stuff. There is a Lawnmower Man video game, but that's really more of based not, on yeah. the movie, not the short story. And there is also a video game for PC based on the Dark Half, which I've never read. Uh, but that's about it. Would you play a Stephen? Well, you wouldn't probably play a Stephen no. King. Would I play a Stephen King video game? Yes, I think you could make a good Stephen King video game. Again, I don't think anyone wants to make it, but mm-hmm. you could. There's a lot of stories that would lean into it. Um, can we talk about things just really quickly? That I feel like cop a lot of Stephen King stuff. Like, should Stranger Things be setting Stephen King some money? No, <laughs> no. I feel like no. you don't think so. No, I feel like a lot of people though, like. You see his influence pop up in so many weird little places. For sure. Like, it's it's crazy. I always thought growing up, because we talked about Stephen King so much, that I didn't know. I, it seems weird to think that the most famous author of all time, like, people know who he is. But I always felt like, I was always surprised when people liked Stephen King when I was a kid. I didn't realize how ubiquitous it was. He's, it's one of those, he's one of those people where I think people, people you see this a lot, like different bands and stuff, people think their favorite is like some secret. It's like, that's a really like popular and well-known thing. Of course everybody, Yeah. of course this guy's everywhere. He's a giant best-selling mm-hmm. author. He's sold a bajillion books. Like, how could people not? You know what I mean? Like, people think that they've discovered something, but like, this is just talking about one of the biggest, you know, best-selling yeah. authors there is. Uh, very quickly before we close out here, I did come up with a list of my five worst uh, Stephen King properties. Cause he's, yeah, there's he's a lot of adaptations. This is not adaptations. These are just Stephen King uh, stories and books that I don't, oh, okay. I don't care for. Oh, okay. Uh, so I'll start with number five. Uh, Black House, the book he did with Peter Straub. Either of the two books that uh, Stephen King did with author Peter Straub where he does like the split books. Sure. I couldn't get into them. Mm. I feel like I could tell when it wasn't King working on it I think I, could, I don't like any of the books I, I don't like any I don't like the idea of two authors being like let's write a book together no it seems stupid it's a dumb idea like oh, just write your own books I don't I don't get it uh, number four the girl who loved Tom Gordon mm-hmm. uh, maybe the first Stephen King book that I just kind of put down uh-huh. I didn't it's just this should have been a short story there was no reason for this to be like a 300 plus page 
sure. novel. It's just... And also, the main character is a girl, an eight-year-old girl, and he just... I, I don't know. It, he couldn't write dialogue or narrative that sounded natural for like what an eight-year-old girl would say alone if she was scared. It just felt weird. It didn't, it didn't work. Not a great book. Number three we mentioned earlier was The Regulators, the mirror novel to Desperation. I want to like this book so bad. Yeah, you and, do. And I just can't like it. It's, it's not, not good. good. It's, it's not good. It's an interesting premise. It's just not good. It's yeah. just It's a mistake. Number two, The Much Maligned Dreamcatcher. I hate this more for the movie than the actual book. Yeah, the book was fine. But it's just, it feels weird. This was like, he wrote this book in a weird time. I think there's like, he just got in the car His accident. His whole life was thing, a weird right? time. But then he just got in like, recovering from that accident. Yeah, he was on painkillers or whatever yeah, it was. Probably. Number one uh, was a book that I read. I got for Christmas as a kid. It is called Hearts in Atlantis. Mm. It is sort of a short story book, but not really. It is Stephen King at his most pretentious. It's <laughs> it's not scary. It's just like waxing poetic about like a different era. And yep. It, it's just not a lot of a lot of later era clunkers. As with any any yeah. artist that gets older, you know, you're gonna start to see that. Uh, those are my five that didn't stick with me. Tommy Knockers almost made the list, but I feel like I know Tommy Knockers more because they mentioned Utica in it. So I'm gonna give him a pass on this. Yeah, one. Tommy Knockers, all right. Oh, also we didn't talk about the Langoliers, your favorite movie. Oh, there's I mean there's tons <laughs> of you. There's, we skipped over the bulk of the adaptations. Yeah, it's Langoliers is awful. Well, Langoliers all bad. a lot of adaptations are really poor for him, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Langoliers was the perfect amount of, like, bad, but also it came out in an era with, like, terrible special effects and bad movie-making Everything about it. Awesome. It was straight to TV. It was just yeah. weird. It was on USA on the weekends all day long. It was weird. Um, just Balky in an empty airport with ugly <laughs> monsters. <laughs> so, the future for Stephen King, uh, that Outsider series people seem to really like. You, enjoy, I think you seem to enjoy the book you told me. I thought the book was great. I watched the series, um... Series, series was good. Uh, you're reading that book, The Institute, right now. I think they are making some adaptation of that already, too. Like that's the adaptation right. for something. Uh, is a new book coming out today? What would you like to see done with the Stephen King properties going forward? Besides him writing more stories, like would you like to see something be done with like a? I would just like to see them be treated with um, care and respect by creators who uh, love them. You know what I mean? Like if you're gonna make, if they they can make whatever they want, do whatever you want, put stuff out because I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not the type who gets mad when people do an adaptation like, oh, you're gonna ruin it. Because like if I don't want to watch it, I just won't watch it. And if I watch a bad movie take on a book, it's not gonna ruin a book for me. You know what I mean? Like that's not, yeah. like that's not the way the brain works. But like I think so mostly for me, anything they're gonna make, anything they're gonna do, just like treat the material with respect and have people who make it be people who really. Love the source material. Yeah, I think, I think we totally see right. how great that can work out when you know you want to talk about like Marvel. You can see what happens when creators mm-hmm. who love the material it's put in their hands, and the way the material can come to life from its people who have a really appreciation for what it is. So I just hope anything they make going forward of his stuff is treated that way by people who look at his stories the way that we do. Besides me we... specifically, I would like to be financed <laughs> to create all of these properties and develop all these properties oh, man. and get an executive producer credit. I think Desperation could have been a good movie if they had done it right, or a good mm. miniseries if they had done it right. It was just terrible casting. Um, yeah. What do you think is the ripest thing to be? Like, if you could take mm. anything of his and either make, remake, mm-hmm. adapt, redo that you think would be the ripest to just knock out of the park? Graveyard Chip. Yeah. I mean, maybe as a. See, Graveyard Shift's tough because it's a short story. That's it's too. That's too art housey. You can't. That's not easy 
too much like wild nuance and short story going on. To turn, like, yeah, but I could see it as like a Guillermo del Toro like practical effects thing. Like someone who really cared about that kind of thing could make a really cool version of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said it last night. I'd like to see it as like a video game adaptation. It's like a mission in a video game. Like go mm-hmm. into this mill and deal with all the fucking queen rats and giant creatures that live down here have been here for 20 years or whatever uh-huh. it is. I just think it's a it's ripe for adaptation. I just don't know the right way to do it. I would like to see um, Ari Aster who made Hereditary mm. and Midsommar do a Stephen King movie. And mm. I would like to see uh, Robert Eggers who made The Witch oh, yeah. do a Stephen King movie. Um, I think you could bang out a two hour 15 minute long Salem's Lot movie. Yeah. You uh, could you could murder Salem's Lot if you followed it along and did it and gave it uh, the care and respect yeah. it deserves. You could do an excellent Salem's Lot. I would have said Pet Cemetery was right for a new adaptation. They just smashed it. Like, it wasn't bad. It, it's worth a watch, but it's as, a, um, as such a big fan of the book, it was a letdown and frustrating, but I still say it's worth a watch to people. I'm trying to think. I mean, I didn't watch Doctor Sleep yet. I've heard that was disappointing. Yeah. I, I like the Doctor Sleep novel, actually. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think uh, other than that, I'd like... Man, I just want them to do the stand right. They're never gonna do it. I just, when I was a kid, I wanted that was my I wanted to like direct the three part stand movie for the theaters, mm. right? And as I get older, I think you'd rather see it as a again like HBO series, mm. something that you can get invested in. But man, I just think about it because I'm like a Game of Thrones hater. I'm like, why don't you take that money you took from Game of Thrones and instead of giving it to George R. R. Martin? Give it to Stephen King and turn this into the stand. Well, that's that that's that's exactly what I was saying when people are like, "Oh, you just you can never adapt the stand. You just can't do it. It's too hard bullshit." If they've got the money for Game of Thrones, they've got the money for the stand. I just don't believe that they'll do it. Yeah, that's a that's a separate conversation. Yeah, yeah. I don't believe that anyone would want to do it, uh, who'd be willing to do it. I don't think HBO cares enough about the stand to be like, "Let's make a stand miniseries." They're they're doing whatever they're doing their own thing, you know. Unless well, you got to prove it to them. I mean, yeah. yeah. What would you have to do to prove to somebody the stand is right for? If I start, the book would have to be a bestseller. The outsider again. just did really good. Yeah, for but them. that's a new book though that just got adapted. True, but, but that's one more Stephen King property that's a big hit for them. Every time, right. everyone so when a Stephen King property does really well for HBO, that doesn't make their chances of doing the stand worse in any way, shape, or form. Let me take a look at something real quick while, sure. before we go here. I just want to see if they're still on tap to do they're that. They're making that CBS garbage one. That's what I'm looking up at because I've heard yeah, nothing about oh, yeah. this. So there's a stand TV series coming out. It's supposed to be coming out. Doesn't say. There's no idea when. Let me look at this cast. Hang Nobody on knows anything. There's no production going on. It's quarantine. James Marsden. Oh, Death Knell. Death Knell. James Marsden. Tell me nothing. Oh, Jesus. Greg Kinnear. Yeah, this is dead. Whoopi Goldberg. Awful. Whoopi Goldberg is good casting. Marilyn from, Manson. From Mother Abigail. What? I mean, cool, but not for this. Alexander Skarsgård is Randall Flagg. That's not bad. Yeah. That's all right. I don't mind. Yeah, him. it's fine. That, but that's your... Heather Graham. This is your it. king? Yeah, it's not great. Is this your king? No. Is this your king? Yeah, it doesn't look great. Uh, all right. That was Killmonger. That was, that was Killmonger. All right, guys. Uh, so thanks for joining us for Stephen King Week here on the pod. I don't know what we're doing next week. We'll find some other yeah, things. I'll figure it out. If you got any ideas for a show, send them to us. We'll do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's it. Sign our folks. Keep it tight. Woodstock lives. M-O-O-N spells moon. Some things are better. Dead. Uh, baby, can you dig your man? We will see you next week with more non-spooky content. Yeah, all right. <laughs>